Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 120 of Through the Years, the podcast reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-pilot, Matt Forestine, and also on this plane today one more time because we're back in Cleveland. You might know him from the other Ring of Honor podcast, and honorable mention, he is one half of that show, Jeff Schwartz. Hey, how you doing? Hello, hello. Hey, now. Glad to be here. Glad to be Best back. Peace, Ralph. Yeah, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry you brought that up so fast because I was gonna mention something about Ralph at the end of the show, but, um, yeah, rest in peace, Ralph. Um, make sure you go see a doctor, people. Yeah. Um. Matt, well, well, well. At least, at least from talking to Trevor, I think he's kind of neurotic like me, so I think he does <laughs> see doctors, and I do too. So. Yeah, me, I, me I, well. I, agree, I agree with that advice. I could tell stories, but how about we uh, enjoy a nice, delightful episode of Through the Years. Um, as always on the show, we covered the news that between the last Ring of Honor show and the timeline and this one. And I got a couple interesting little nuggets here. The first thing is, this was like in the timeline where this came out, but I've always remembered this little factoid. So we'll go to the Wrestling Observer. Meltzer would write, in an interview with Slam Wrestling, Brian Danielson said he would love to join the Peace Corps. Quote, I love wrestling and it is a great sport, but I also want to help people with my life, he said. There are a lot of people out there who need support and aren't getting it from a lot of places. I may not change the world, but it will make me feel a little bit better. He said he applied in 2005 but wasn't accepted without a college degree. He said he's taking classes online right now and feels once he gets his degree, it will be easier to get in. So, yeah, this was like there are so many p- t- very conceivable timelines, alternate timelines where Brian Danielson quit wrestling early because I think in 2004, there was that whole thing where he was one of the wrestlers kind of having like this crisis of, you know, is this all I'm, all the opportunities I'm going to get? Maybe I should get out of wrestling. There was that thing I think he wrote in his book even where like in 2004, if they had just the money or like opportunity had been a little bit better, he would have just stayed doing those like little tourist shows in the UK and Europe. You know, there was the concussion issue and now it feels like we finally are going to lose Danielson, at least as a full-time wrestler now. But he's had a good run. But yeah, you, you also, you still, even now, you never know. Um, yeah. But um, yeah, like it's, I was thinking, I remember the Peace Corps thing. And I remember thinking, because like this was like right after I finished college. And I remember, you know, having some people I went to school with who were talking about the Peace Corps. And I remember it was considered extremely competitive and hard to get and i was like hmm, would somebody with brian danielson's resume be accepted well i guess he wasn't right but yeah. um it's just it was, you know i'm not sure if he was being realistic about being yeah. able to get in he was very self-deprecating i think in interviews where he'd be like yeah they were like you don't have any skills because all you've done <laughs> is wrestling and you can't wrestle to really yeah. help the priest course so yeah but which is interesting and- that, he, that he was trying to get online degrees i wonder what he was studying you know that, that he thought would help him the art well, and of now he he's pilots. he's disciplining people. He's about yeah. finding people. He's the yeah, yeah maybe he was, yeah maybe so. he was getting it maybe he was getting an MBA back then and now he's a real business leader in his uh, although I know I know some people that are kind of doubtful that he's that the finding thing is that it's exactly as who knows who knows yeah if, I mean I knew we got bro- show, boss right? Brian now who knows I'm I'm also not boss gonna. Brian I like it I like it. I'm, now, I'm not going. I'm not going to immediately assume the negative interpretation of Danielson. I mean, I'm not saying I refuse to believe it, but I'm not going to automatically jump to that conclusion because I have a lot of respect for him, as you can tell from the podcast. So, 
Well, he's the greatest ever. He's the greatest wrestler of all time. There, I mean, there's possibly. There's, like it. Yeah, I don't think there's an argument that can be made. Um, I really, I really don't. Well, this next little story we got is a perfect transition because it's a perfect marriage of Brian Danielson talk and having one half of the great and honorable mention podcast on because this combines both. You'll see in a second. Going back to the Observer. The craziest ROH title defense in history will be on September 30th on an NAW Pro Show in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I mean, NWA. I don't know. I was dyslexic. A-N-W. Yeah. Root beer. With Danielson facing – Brian Danielson facing Kamala. So why there's a, a and then the PW Torch would add afterwards. Kamala defeated ROH World Champion Brian Danielson via disqualification on September 30th in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So um, why this is an honorable mention connection is if you fans want to watch this crazy match online, it's been uploaded to YouTube for free by an honorable mention. So if you will, I was I, I was reminded that when I when I Googled it the other day, I didn't have time to watch it, but I was just wondering like, is this for, for, available for free online? It's like, oh yeah, they uploaded it. What nice guys! And another fun fact: you watch anyone that wants to watch this match, Prince Nana is the ref. So it's just a bizarre little like moment in history where Brian Danielson, fresh off severe shoulder injury, defends the Ring of Honor title against Kamala with Prince Nana as ref in a different company. I don't remember the finish, but according to the torch loses by disqualification. So insane. Trevor, Trevor, I'll take that one step further. And if you go uh, on iTunes and you search out podcasts and you pull up an honorable mention, uh, the feed that we have on iTunes uh, way back in the archives, as Hagger and I used to say, uh, we have a little bonus episode. Uh, I think it was like maybe 10 or 11 episodes in where we watch the match and do commentary. So if you want to watch the link on YouTube, mute it and listen to Hagador and I just laugh ridiculously uh, <laughs> for about 12 minutes. It's out there for free. Yeah, so that, that's awesome. So, yeah, that's a great little extra for anyone that wants to have. If you want ROH homework, I know a lot of our listeners like to like save the show until they've like listened to the podcast till they've watched the episode we cover, and some people are behind because of that. If you want even more homework, if you want like extra credit homework, there's a match for you to watch right now because that happened right you know before this show. So, um, a couple other little news bits. This is from the PW Torch, and I always like mentioning these because I think anyone that's younger that listens to the show, I know there's at least a couple where this is they did not grow up with Ring of Honor. You, you know, you're younger, you didn't grow up with things. If you want to know how different the wrestling fan world was, this is from the PW Torch. All all eight ROH shows that haven't been released are currently in production and haven't been released due to the volume of shows ROH ran in a short amount of time in August. The events from this past weekend will also also go into production shortly. So that sounds like ROH was 10 shows behind. Like nowadays people get mad about like, oh, you know, it takes months and months for a PWG show to come out. But like this was, a, you know, Ring of Art was a company that ran like kind of a sequentially, you know, where they were storylines that, you know, went and evolved from the yeah, show yeah, to it show. Was, it, was, it was episodic, yeah. Yeah, and, and and this was a company where like people are so used to now. You gotta watch. You get you you're able to watch everything live, or at worst, like the next day. You know, if you were a Ring of Honor fan back then, you would have stretches like this where like 
there would be literally like eight shows that you were like, wow, I know what's happened to all these. I want to see at least some of them. I can't even buy them right now. Lil, I'm going to have to wait the weeks for them to arrive. Like In some ways, following ROH back then was almost like following an e-fed that was created in a wrestling simulator because you would just watch these text-based descriptions of the shows and have to like imagine them for weeks or months until you actually got to see them. Yeah, so – um. And then let's close with this. It's a little bit longer. And I would debate if I was even going to read this, but I think it's worth it because it's, you kind of get a couple things. So this was a Bruce Mitchell pro wrestling torch column. And it's kind of interesting just because he rarely talked about ring of Iron, so It was interesting to hear him give some accolades, but also, um, the, I'm going to be honest. The real reason is because he makes a key mistake here and then he has to apologize for it the next week. Um, listeners, sharp eared listeners. So, so you just, you just want to dunk on him basically. No, I mean, see if you can spot the, the mistake. Um, this is Bruce Mitchell's column. He wrote, it's called, he called it sports entertainer of the year. He wrote, Let's get the easy part out of the way first. Go out and buy the Glory by Honor 5 Part 2, no less, DVD from Ring of Honor at ROHWrestling.com. It's a great show. It has two real match of the year candidates. ROH champion Brian Danielson defending against the best wrestler in the world, Kenta, in the match ROH built up for a year. And the first ever American title defense of pro wrestling known as GHC title against Naomichi Marafuji versus Nigel McGuinness. Both are well worth the price on their own. But the show also features a homicide in Samoa Joe, Briscoe's brothers, Jim Cornette angle slash match. Dimmy Richards versus Jack Evans, a real legend actually treated with real respect in Bruno San Martino, and the handiwork of one of the best bookers this business has ever seen, Gabe Sapolsky. But that's not what this memo is about. Every time I watch Ring of Honor, this thought comes to me and I try to shake it off. Ring of Honor isn't about sports entertainment. It's about respect. It's about honor. It's about the next stage of worked pro wrestling. Now, WWE, they're not about that. They're about sports entertainment. They're willing to leave the now, this sentence I could not get. He wrote, they're willing to leave the all guy, short guy, work rate boutique to whoever WWE may be in something of a creative stall lately. But surely the best sports entertainers are there. Hell, DX, Triple H of the Heartbreak Kid, are the epitome of stooging, smug acting, and goofing around. John Cena isn't far off either. WWE invented the term, so they should know how to do it. Still, WWE sports entertainers are missing something. They're not sports, and they're not all that entertaining. And watching Ring of Honor, it's not hard to figure out what that is. They're missing Colt Cabana. The guy I used to think was Disco Inferno Jr., and nobody wants that, is a riot. And he's in he's in on Glory by Honor 5, and the match he's in on Glory by Honor 5 is a riot, too. See, Jimmy Jacobs, who could be the third member of the WWE Tag Team Champions, Champion Team of Brian Kendrick and Paul London, he's that cute, has a crush on his manager, Ashley, who's mean to him because, like all hot girls... <laughs> Like all hot girls, she's mean to guys who have crushes on her. I think I mentioned the brilliant music video in a previous memo. Instead, she's having sex with Colt Cabana, who thinks Jacobs is adult because having sex with Ashley is no big deal to him. This little stable has a... Yeah, this little stuff. Oh, keep, it keeps going. This little stable has a big match on this big show, a match that Ashley really wants to win. And the odds of that happening are in her favor since the match is Jacobs versus Cabana versus Christopher Daniels. Did I mention that Jimmy caught Ashley in the shower with Colt? Of course, it's all completely ridiculous and there's no, nobody much to root for, but you haven't lived until you've seen Cabana set up poor eager Jacobs for humiliation in team up spot after team up spot in this match. Cabana has one of the most expressive faces in wrestling, a real sense of comedic timing, and the guy can work 
York, too. Witnesses feud earlier in the year with Ring of Honor's Stone Cold Homicide, as brutal and well-worked a program as any this year. I mean, this is a guy who gets wrestling fans to sing along to Barry Manilow. Some wrestling fans, not me. He's the best sports entertainer in the game. He even, earlier this year, did some work for WWE. There was ECW on Halloween, where he played a farrier some damn thing to Paul Heyman's gorilla at ringside. Better than that, and I... And, and I know what you're thinking, what could be better than that, was Caban on Raw squash duty several months ago, where he somehow managed to keep his face off camera the entire match so as not to ruin the illusion for his ROH fans. Cole Cabana could be working SmackDown, teaming up with Jimmy Yang, or he could be leading a new legion of stooges against DX now that the Spirit Squad is done on Raw, or he could be a TV preacher trying to lead the pious sting astray on TNA Impact, except he doesn't have the body WWE likes. Thank goodness the... Jewish, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, that's, thank goodness the company has so many overacts of promising prospects in the pipeline, or they would really be missing a bet, missing a bet with this guy. His prospects aside, this year, Cole Cabana is the sports entertainer of the year. And then, if you thought there was going to be a correction, yes, this was Bruce Mitchell the very next week. I wonder if Ring of Honor's Lacey thinks I'm an idiot after my brain-dead references to her in last week's memo as Ashley. Ashley, this one I don't wonder. I'm sorry, Lacey, but I'm not running you a song to show it, since that didn't seem to work out so well for Jimmy Jacobs. So, do you, yeah, th- I mean, do, you th- do you think that Bruce, like, in his life had a crush on somebody named Ashley at the time, and he just kept, like, <laughs> doing a Freudian slip repeatedly over and over and over again? Also, doesn't Wade Keller edit the torch? Yeah, I mean, maybe, who knows if he, he caught it, but I mean, yeah, that was, it was interesting, like, I, I did like, Matt, sometimes we've talked on the show about, like, stuff like Dave Meltzer was, had a, he treated indie wrestling with a little more distaste, like a little more of a stigma, and how he's kind of been in the process of evolving over the course of the, of the podcast. Like, I feel like this was a nice moment for Bruce Mitchell, too, so I'm actually giving him some credit, Matt, where, like, because I do remember early on, he called Colt Cabana out for being, like, a Disco Inferno ripoff. I was like, how much of Disco Inferno do you, I mean, Colt Cabana do you really have seen? And credit to him here, he openly admits, like, hey, I call this guy Disco Inferno Jr., I was wrong. I'm a huge fan. And, you know, a lot of guys like that, like a lot of indie guys at ROH in the early days got like I think Jason Powell once compared Homicide early on in Ring of Honor to uh, New Jack, which is like, again, like, yep. I mean, yeah, there's so I mean, it's so many- honestly, honestly, like I'm not calling Jason Powell racist, but like that comparison is at least a little bit like racist, you know, because like they're not really alike at all. Yeah. I mean, dark skinned guy that occasionally does plunder matches. But I mean, Homicide yeah, is a like, completely set of talent. Yeah. yeah. But, He's also yeah. a different race. Homicide. Yeah, yeah. Puerto Rican versus African American. Yeah. African American. So yeah, exactly. let, let's not let that get in the way of a silly comparison. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah, I, I just thought that was a cute thing and a little interesting snapshot of the time. But now we can get to the show itself. Watch, I just, did I ever tell oh, you go that? On. The Bruce Mitchell like thing that I might have even told this before, like around this time he was talking about Danielson. He was like, you know, Danielson's great. This might have even been on the torch board. And he was like, Danielson's great. But like, I can't believe that he has this terrible song, the final countdown as his his entrance. We all thought that song was super cheesy back in the day. And Danielson thinks it's actually good. And I, I remember responding to him on the board. I was like, you know, he picked that song because it's bad. Right. And he was like, yeah. I don't think he believed me. I mean, one of the reasons why is like Daniels has literally said one of the reasons why he picked that song was he was reading a music magazine that said like this is the worst song of all time. Yeah, yeah, that was known at the yep. time. You know, he yeah. just did, didn't do any research. Um, well, can, I guess can I just say everyone... one? Yeah, can I say on. one thing on Bruce Mitchell real quick? Sure. Um, so I've been I I read Bruce uh for a very long time, 
And for a professional writer that covered legitimate sports like ACC basketball, um, he has had a history of just throwing a bunch of words into a word bowl and creating the most disturbing word salads. <laughs> and Trevor, what you read at the start of that before the Ashley stuff uh, might be the best microcosm of Bruce Mitchell ever. I think Bruce, like I have mixed feelings about Bruce. Like I think Bruce was an important writer in the nineties, especially, yeah. you know, I was, when a, there I, was, were, I was definitely a fan of his, like I liked the polemic style. Like, yeah, sometimes you'd be too cynical, but like, yeah. I, I liked that because some people, I mean, especially now, but some people in, in wrestling media were just not cynical enough. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we could sure. use a little more Bruce Mitchell in wrestling today. Although Bruce Mitchell at times was too, as you kind of just alluded to Matt was too Bruce Mitchell. I think even for Bruce Mitchell, it's probably one of the major reasons he is, vanished you know because he yeah like matt said he was often sometimes at least cynical to an extreme fault but at the same time sometimes especially in wrestling cynicism was sorely needed but also um, also the first the first wrestling podcast i ever really listened to and it wasn't i don't even know if it was called a podcast at the time was the bruce mitchell audio show where every friday bruce and wade would upload like a, you know, a one to two yeah. hour discussion of the week. And this was like going back to like Oh four or early Oh five, you know, like I was, I was listening, you know, yeah. predated, predated Joe versus the world. Like it was a, so like, you know, that got me into wrestling podcasts. I was so, so excited to listen to that every week because, you know, it, you know, and obviously Meltzer was doing the radio show, but this was just like pre-recorded, no ads, you know, like to talk about whatever. It was much better than what Wrestling Observer Live had become at that point, which was, you know, so many ads and, and breaks and stuff. Yeah, it, it's, uh, yeah, I remember for a, like a time, you know, nowadays you got just this buffet of choices of which we are just one. Back then, I remember like my main staples, and I think, you know, you, did, you had way fewer options was like Bruce and Wade. And like the early Brian and Vinny shows, like that, like that kind yeah. of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the Bruce shows predated um, the Figure Four audio by a few, yeah. at least a few months. Yeah. So that brings us to Survival of the Fittest, 2006. It took place October 6th, 2006. That's a lot of sixes at Grace Armory in Cleveland, Ohio, in front of a reported crowd of 375 fans. This would be the last show. This would be the show that killed Cleveland because Ring of Honor would not come back here for a couple of years. We'll get that into a second. There's actually a bunch of reporting I got here about the fallout from this. So we'll go to the Observer first. Dave wrote, they, Ring of Honor had one of the worst weekends box office-wise in history this past weekend for a number of reasons. The October 6th show in Cleveland drew 375 fans for the annual Survival of the Fittest show. After several attempts in the market, Gabe Sapolsky said, that's it. They've never drawn well in Cleveland, and they aren't going back. And then we'll go to the protesting torch. Orange dropped the Cleveland market because attendance wasn't growing and merchandise sales were low. Despite drawing 400 at Ring of Honor's last event in Dayton, Ohio, Orange management still considers Dayton a strong market. Regarding the decision to cease running events in Cleveland in the future, Sapolsky tells the Pro Wrestling Torch, quote, Things just didn't work out in Cleveland. Some of the crowds we had there were actually fine, but we didn't see any growth in the crowd size or merchandise sales, which was the discouraging part. I thought we went there with big shows and solid matches and different stuff on each show, but things just didn't work out. So I actually decided to do look through my notes and kind of do a little brief history of them in Cleveland to go, well, let's check that. And I don't think Gabe's wrong. So before the show, ROH had run four shows in Cleveland starting in 2005. 
These are the shows that I'll give you the attendances. So you had Enter the Dragon. That was the first one. That was Danielson's first Ring of Honor title defense against Ares. You had Joe and Samoa Joe and Jay Lethal versus the Embassy. You had Caban and Carino versus Homicide Low Key. That only drew 350. Then the next show in Cleveland, you had Dissension. That had Danielson versus AJ Styles for the title. You had uh, Aries is Strong versus Whitmer and Jacobs for the tag titles. You had Seidel versus Daniels for the first time, I think. That drew 550, which is actually by 2006 Ring of Honor standards. It's a pretty good crowd. Then you had Weekend of Champions Night 2. You had Danielson versus McGinnis for the first time, title versus title. You had Aries is Strong versus the Embassy for the tag belts. You had uh, BJ Whitmer versus Super Dragon. You had Daniels versus Seidel again. And then the, that actually, I think that's, in my opinion, like the best card of any time they've had in Cleveland. That actually went down to 450. And then they had Generation Now, which was Danielson versus Nigel for the world title again. Uh, Chris, Christopher Daniels versus Christian Cage in Christian's second and final ROH match. And then you had the Generation Next Farewell eight-man tag where they team, faced four up-and-comers. That drew 500. And then you get to tonight, and they're down to 375. So I have to imagine, you know, a couple of those attendances, like Gabe said, are not bad. But he probably looked at 375 and just went, you know, whatever. Um, ROH would run Cleveland again one more time in its history. That would be August 2008, almost two years after the show, and just a couple months before Gabe got fired. So maybe this was in their desperation, like – we gotta, we gotta get fans somehow thing. And that show only drew 400 fans. I believe that show is headlined by Nigel versus El Generico for the world title. But, uh. Yeah, I definitely think that the, the best two shows were the April 06 and the July 06 shows. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, survival of the fittest, I don't think was ever, you know, and it's funny because like we're saying this now is AW version, AW's version of ROH is doing a survival of the fittest for the first time, but, um, <laughs> It was like it was never that great of a gimmick, you know. Like I, no one, I don't remember anyone being like, "Yeah, I can't wait for Survival of the Fittest next year," you know. So I, it doesn't shock me that it wasn't a big draw. Maybe if you want, I mean, I guess he wasn't that interested in saving Cleveland, but you know, if you tried one more time with like an actually big card, you never know what could have happened. Uh, Jeff, I want to get your thoughts in a second. About that Matt, uh, that leads me to my one last news note before we get to the show, and I'm going to ask Jeff for some thoughts. But um, th- th- that dovetails in perfectly because this is the PW Insiders report. They wrote, ROH announced that their return to Cleveland would feature the 2006 version of Survival of the Fittest. The original plan was to retire the gimmick for this year, but the company decided they needed something special to, ret- to return to Cleveland within while it to return to Cleveland with in Ohio. Plus there was a loud outpouring of fan support on ROH's website for it to return. When PWInsider.com praised the report, ROH's plans to not use the match this year. So apparently Jeff, I mean, you were big on the message board. Did you remember popular demand bringing back survival of the fist? Cause according to this, Ringvar was kind of momentarily designed like, Oh, let's just shelve this. In fact, they do shelve it eventually, but they bring it back for this year. They do it for 2007. At least I know that. Um, and so, also, what are your thoughts just about, like, the Cleveland market, seeing as how, you know, close to home, you, you know, were at these shows. Like, what do you think about, like, did you go this and go, oh, yeah, this isn't, we're not long for the world here? So I I knew that this show was going to draw poorly uh, just based on the date. Um, this is right in the uh, heart of high school football rivalry week. Um, mm-hmm. The first week of October, uh, Fridays and Saturdays here in Ohio, we um, generally have our second biggest uh, rivalries for high school football. 
that week every year. And it's been that way for as long as I can, as long as I've been alive. Uh, so probably much further back. Um, I don't think people realize, but Northeast Ohio and Cleveland in particular, uh, is a lot like Texas where high school football is just as important as the NFL and Ohio State Buckeye football. Uh, so w- if you look at the dates Cleveland got Ring of Honor shows, there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. The mm-hmm. January show, um, you know, that's fine because there's not a lot going on. Um, I seem to recall maybe the Cavs were at home. Um, and I know we talked about it when we covered dissension, but, um, you know, that it's the LeBron James era. So you're selling out 16,000 seats at a basketball game. But when you're running up against high school football, you don't just have basketball fans you have people that are football fans going to their high schools for homecoming and rivalry week all over the state so nobody's willing to really travel Mm -hmm. uh in for this show um i walked in there and i I looked around and i said all right that's the end of that all right (laughs) we had fun i guess i'll you know and now mind you i i had been at the Manhattan Center the previous show and in Connecticut the show before that with the tent uh, for Glory by Honor. So, you know, losing Cleveland sucked for sure, but it wasn't the end of the world for me, whereas it was, you know, a huge disappointment to a lot of the non-traveling fans. Yeah. Um, As far as survival of the fittest goes, I wanted to actually ask you guys, um, I feel like survival of the fittest was a late like decision that was made. Like, I don't think, and I I guess, you know, we'll talk about the show itself at some point, but I don't feel like people knew survival of the fittest was coming, you know, in August uh, when the Cleveland show was uh, starting to form after, you know, through glory by honor. Um, I, I certainly can't place, and I, I went and looked uh, in my files that I saved from show reports and things like that, and I I don't see anything that tells me when Survival of the Fittest was even announced for this show. So it seems to me like it was like, well, we know the Midwest, Cleveland and Detroit are going to be pretty low attended shows. Detroit Motor City Madness was the next day. Um, so maybe it it was like, let's just throw a gimmick show on top of this. And then we can kind of crunch the roster a little bit. Um, they're also coming back to Dayton, um, which is not the same market. Dayton's a four and a half, five hour drive from Cleveland. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at, but but if you live, but if you live in the middle, it's like a two hour drive either way. So like that's, you know, in that sense, you get some of the fame fans. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Columbus is kind of the – Columbus is about an hour from Dayton, hour and ten minutes. Um, and additionally, you know, Cleveland, you can get to Columbus in about two and a half if you know the right way. But, yeah, it I, between the late 
the late blooming survival, the fittest announcement and high school football or baseball games, basketball games. Um, Cause I know that the then Cleveland Indians, now Cleveland guardians um, were at home the night of Jen now. And I don't think attendance was great, especially in, in 2006, they were terrible, but Still, I mean, they, they they did themselves no favors when advanced scheduling. And part of me wonders if Sid ever put any effort into advanced scheduling. I actually think that's a great point. And like for those of people who think, oh, you know, because, you know, in wrestling, people use excuses for everything. But I feel like if you want evidence that how much sports can um, affect shows, I'll point this out. I was saving this for the next show, but I'll just read it on the next show. But um, so this is on the Observer. This was, believe it or not, the Cleveland show was not the worst attended show of this double shot weekend. It was the next night because go to the Observer. The October 7th show in Detroit actually drew worse, just 325 fans. But that at least had an excuse going head to head with the Michigan versus Michigan State game. And the show started right after the Tigers knocked the Yankees out of the playoffs and the whole city was celebrating. They had quite a few people who bought tickets who didn't even come. So yeah, yeah, like that, that shows you right there. Like if you book something against a major sporting event or, you know, if something comes up, like people bought tickets were like, I'm not showing up to Ring of Honor if like the Tigers are playing the Yankees. Like no way. And well, I mean, if you follow, you know, wrestling TV ratings now, you see how sports affect it all the time. Like I can't relate to it as a, someone who's not really a sports fan, but like you, I mean, it's, it's undeniable. Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll I'll just give you guys something current um, as far as counter programming against sports. There's two Monday night football games on Monday, December 11th, and CM Punk was announced for Monday Night Raw five days ago, um, which also happens to coincidentally be in Cleveland. So um, counter programming with. CM Punk against two Monday night football games at the same time. Uh, it's not like a East coast, West coast time zone thing either. It's two, eight o'clock football games. Yeah. Uh, going right head to head with raw as, as they head into, uh, the Royal rumble season. But now so. we can finally see the, uh, let's see the show that killed Cleveland. So we open with the Briscoes backstage, uh, Jay says the last time they were here, Homicide gave Jay this scar, and he points to, yes, in fact, a very real grisly scar on the top of his head. Jay says Homicide threw a chair at him and busted him wide open that night. He says tonight, though, they're going to run through him and Roderick Strong and prove that teamwork wins Survival of the Fittest. At this point, Jimmy Rave bursts in and interrupts, saying he knows the Briscoes have the Jim Cornette hookup. So, you know, wh- what's going on? He goes, what's going to what's going on since I returned from Japan? You know, I went to Dragon Gate. Where's Prince Nana? Where's Salvinaro? He needs the Briscoes to find out for him or tell him where Cornette is at. Mark instead just tells Jimmy to man up and Jimmy just gets angry and leaves. So that continues a little storyline that we're going on through the night. Although no one really explains in this storyline why Jimmy Rave apparently does not have Prince Nana's phone number. Like, like he's constantly, he seems shocked that he's not there and has no way of knowing why he's not there. So, um, this could have all been explained by saying Prince Nana ran out of minutes. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the new version of uh, CM Punk lo- looking for the person who attacked Lucy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we uh, 
we cut to Austin Aries backstage in front of a couple ratty looking doors. Uh, Aries says, survive. Yeah, those, door, those doors were something. Wow. Like they were like, <laughs> they, I haven't been painted in like the haunted schoolhouse is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aries said uh, Survival of the Fittest is a bittersweet uh, mo- event for him because in 2004, it put his name on the map when he took Brian Danielson to the limit, but it came just a little bit short. In 2005, it came down to him and Roderick Strong, and again, he lost right at the end when he was one of the final two. Aries says this is the year he wins Survival of the Fittest, and nope. In fact, I don't think he's ever won Survival of the Fittest. Um, and then we go to the ring. Where Dave Prezak, your ring announcer for the night, has the mic. So one of those classic Midwest cost cutting probably things where Bobby Cruz does not get to make the trip. Um, so Prezak gets on the mic and he uh, welcomes the crowd to survival of the fittest and he explains the rules for the tournament, including mentioning that in the event of a draw in the first round, all participants in that match will be eliminated from the tournament. And I was like, hmm, I wonder why they emphasize that one. Then I realized also this is one of those things that's a little pet peeve of mine in wrestling where you change rules for a match for no reason, but it will serve the booking. Because I looked up uh, last year, Survival of the Fist did not have a 20-minute time limit in matches. They had like that Daniels, um, Jamie Noble match that went, I think, well over 20 minutes. But obviously, when you see the booking later in the night, you'll see why they had to do it for this one. But brings us to the opening match. Survival of the Fittest 2006 first round match. And again, for new listeners, just in case you don't know what Survival of the Fittest is, it is a one night, two round tournament where there's usually five or six matches, depending on if one of them is a tag or not. Everyone that wins those matches goes to the final, which is the match in the main event, which is just basically an elimination match where the winner is the Survival of the Fittest. Um, so Survival of the Fittest, first round match, Matt Seidel defeats Davey Richards via pinball in 12 minutes, 23 seconds after he hit, I guess, uh, Trent Brown would call it the crunchy or the dude buster. Matt, what'd you think about this as an opener? Well, this was definitely my favorite of the pre-intermission matches, I would say. Um, you know, it would have had, Energy in opener style energy, uh, in a way that I think kicked off the tournament pretty well. I still think it was like vaguely disappointing in that I think that these two could do even better if they really went all out. I think they were, sa- well, Seidel at least was saving a little bit for later. But I mean, I think they did basically what you wanted. They were athletic. There was two, it was two baby faces doing a baby face style opener. It lacked a little bit of heat, but it was substantial, you know, like they, they did stuff. It wasn't like a super basic, completely forgettable match. Davey was very verbal <laughs> in the beginning. He was like, <laughs> he was asking the crowd if they're ready for him to kick some ass. And then he says, sorry, Matt, before he starts kicking him. So I think already Davey was a pretty unique character. I think he gets a bad rap in terms of being, you know, like a lot of people do yeah. in terms of being like, just like dry and stiff. Mm-hmm. Like I think he, he had a personality. It was a little bit, that was a little bit quirky. Um, but, you know, Davey, you know, it was what you expect. Davey did a lot of kicks and, uh, Seidel did a lot of, um, aerial stuff. At one point, he does a chop fake and then yells sucka before going to Davey's legs. Um, he, he does a thing where, um, Seidel goes for a leaping DDT off the top, but Davey catches him on his shoulders and gut busters him and Liger bombs him, which was cool, led to, um, some organic dueling chants. There was a spot where Richards knocked Seidel off, uh, the top rope and, and le- leaped off, but Seidel does like a glancing spin kick on the way down, which 
wasn't uh, pristinely executed, but I thought was still a pretty good spot. Um, and then the, another verbal point, they're exchanging strikes on their knees with Davey yelling, come on, and then he yells, over, before missing a spin kick. Um, <laughs> so a lot of uh, kind of uh, mid-match commentary by Davey. But I uh, but I liked the match. I thought it was pretty good. I liked that um, Seidel got a clean, decisive win over Richards um, in the end. And I thought it, you know, for all things considered, got the show off to a, a pretty solid start. Jeff, what do you think? So this is the perfect of, of this card. There were two options to open it, and I thought this was the better of the two matches. Um, match two on the main show. Uh, Delirious and Rave was my other thought of what could have opened this and fit. Um, there, there was a dark match allegedly before this that I have zero recall of. Hagedorn reminded me of it. Uh, Egotistico Fantastico in Hagedorn one on one. Oh, that's a good um, catch. I didn't even have that in my notes. Yeah, it didn't come up. Huh. It's, it's nowhere to be found in the pro fight database. Yeah. Cage match doesn't have yeah. it. Um, Hagedor and I were just kind of going back and forth texting at like two o'clock this morning. And <laughs> I, I mentioned I was doing the pod tonight and he was like, I think that was the show I wrestled egotistico fantastico in the dark opener. Um, there, there's more Hagedorn, uh, news later, uh, when we talk about, uh, the dark match that occurs after intermission. Yeah. But, um, this show also has one other historical feature to it, DVD-wise, uh, Trevor and Matt, that you guys may not know. This was the first video wire show. Yes, yes, we mentioned that on the on the last episode. That's right. It was the first the first that they officially called it the video wire. So you know things moving forward there. But as far as Seidel and Davy goes, um, I thought this was solid. Uh, it didn't strike me as being like um, the quality of match that these two could have had maybe two or three years down the road. Um, well, I guess Seidel was gone three years down the road, but like, <laughs> you know, in a year, even, uh, I think this kind of felt like two individuals that were sort of on the same page, but also still had some progress that needed to be made. Um, very clearly I felt Davy Richards was ahead of Matt Seidel verbally. Um, you know, you talked about how Davy was so vocal throughout the entire match. That's what made this thing work to me. Um, even though Seidel gets the win, I really enjoy their dynamic, but I kind of felt like Maybe two baby faces wasn't the right way to get a crowd into a show. I don't know. But yeah, solid uh, enough. In, I, a, in a totally inoffensive match. I probably like this match like a little bit more than you guys. Not a ton, but like, uh, I thought this was like a low good, like little opener. I was kind of surprised. 
surprised. Um, this first off, man, I, I will agree with you. Like I even wrote my notes. This is the battle of guys that like to be sm- to be mouthy smartasses in the ring. I wrote in this match alone, Seidel pl- complains that a two count was more like one and a half, which is just such a ridiculous, petulant thing for a baby face to say. Um, well, it, it reminded me of when uh, Collier yelled at the referee uh, in England because the referee was like two. Uh, well, you know, um. Well, uh, one and the, and the ref was like, and Collier was like, that was two. It's like, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't matter. Um, Davey at one point, he chastises Seidel for pulling his hair and he goes, Hey, 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 you're not a bad guy. And again, like, like you were saying, Matt, like Davey did always have a personality, like a real smart ass. And then like you even said, where Davey's openly apologizing to Matt before he starts kicking him. But yeah, I thought this was like a little good little opener. I feel like there are usually two schools of good openers, whether it's either like a balls to the wall show stealer of a match or something that's maybe actually pretty kind of tonally light where it's, you know, maybe a lot of comedy and character work, but there's not much action. So it's easy for the rest of the show to follow. And sometimes I forget you could have a third way, which is a match like this, which to me, I would say, you know, this match starts a little slow and it builds into an exciting match that does enough to like satisfy you. And it doesn't make you feel cheated. And I feel like that's a pretty tough goal to hit because yeah, like clearly this is a match that these two main evented. They could have done more, could have gone bigger, could have gone longer. But yet I didn't get the feeling watching this match that I often get in undercard matches where they're really holding back in, in that way. Like this wasn't a, there, there are matches I watch in the undercards where it feels like they're trying, they're doing what they would do in, in like their five star main event attempt match, but they're like pumping the brakes every 30 seconds. I didn't really feel that here. I felt more like this was they were, aiming to do a, like a three to a three and a quarter star match and they hit the bullseye. Like, like it didn't feel like they were trying to do a match that was any better or worse than what they did. Um, Seidel does his usual stuff. Davey does his, I think Seidel did a really good job of selling Davey's kicks. And I think the amount that Davey brutalized Matt actually started to bring out just like a little bit more out of Seidel than you normally see in terms of like intensity. I don't want to oversell it, but you know, he was starting to fire back with like slaps and stuff that you usually don't see from Seidel. And so overall, I would say this was like instantly forgettable, but absolutely enjoyable in the moment. And, uh, also, this was the first thing you'll notice, the first match, so you'll notice that um, Seidel dies to the hardwood floor, which, you know, one of those indie things where this night, yeah, there was no padding on the floor, it's just a hardwood floor. So any dive you we taught, referenced tonight, it's happened to, you know, pretty unforgiving environment. But um, And it was the most disgusting, dirty floor in all of Cleveland. Oh, God. <laughs> That's like, a lot. <laughs> I, I don't want to – I don't want to – demean the Gray's Armory because it is a historic venue, um, meaning that it will never get torn down. Mm. Uh, it's a historical landmark in the state of Ohio. But that floor, I don't know if it ever saw a broom or a mop Ugh. or anything. It's just, I, I vividly remember it. It was just gross. It's funny, like, you know, there's been a lot of discourse lately about, like, cutting and bleeding and wrestling with the uh, hangman page swerve strickland match and it's funny like when i see wrestlers get cut a lot of times especially when i'm watching indie wrestling like a lot of times my main concern isn't like oh the cuts how barbaric it's now they're rolling on like the most dirty germ-ridden staff-filled surfaces ever yeah Yeah, with open wounds when i watch when i watch like death match clips because i really don't tend to watch the full matches like i don't know how those people aren't fighting off 
deadly infections all the time. Like it's, it seems just so unsanitary to me. I mean, I'm yeah. a germaphobe as it is, but it seems so unsanitary. Like you, you could yeah, cut Matt, my arm. Matt, and- I'm right there with you. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 you can like cutting my arm to me is one tenth as scary as having like an open cut touching the 2003 IWA Mid South like canvas. Like to me, that's way worse. You know, like like cut me more so I don't have to touch that if that's the trade. Like like just the, so. Um, that brings us to the next survival of the fittest match, first round match. Delirious defeated Jimmy Ray, a score to the ring by Daisy Hayes. So, um, via submission in 10 minutes, 22 seconds when he made him tap out to the Cobra stretch. So yeah, Ray was in this weird transition period in his career at this point because Nana was gone, but he still came out to the embassy theme. Daisy Hayes was still in his corner. He still got showered in toilet paper, but you know, he's not the Jimmy Ray we'll see in a couple of months. He's not the Jimmy Ray, you know, of a month or two before. Uh, Jeff, you said earlier that this was like your under other contender when looking at the card, like, oh, this could have opened. What do you think about the match that here on number two spot on the card? I actually really like this match. Um, bef- on the DVD, uh, there's a Roderick Strong promo that that goes right before this match. Oh, I forgot that. Let me just recap the card. I'm sorry, I completely forgot. We we cut to Roderick Strong backstage. He says a survival of the fist 2005. He came into that show fresh off a big win over Matt Hardy, but he needed something else to get him over the top and was winning that tournament. He says he and Aries haven't forgotten about the Kings of wrestling, and the tag team titles, but tonight he needs the momentum of becoming a two time survival of his champion. So it was, re- it was refreshing to see Roderick's neck. Yeah. <laughs> and no mustache or glasses. He had yes. his vision was pristine at this point of all, the, um, of, all I, the guys, of all the guys to be like just like a complete soap opera character years later wouldn't have paid roger strong no because if you watch this promo it's like you can see he's trying to form the sentence in his head before he says it yeah and it was like a frequent occurrence um if i remember right this was a, a day where I was in the building before the show had started and I I think this got like four or five different attempts before Roddy finally just got 35 seconds worth of words out. <laughs> Aww. <laughs> uh, I, there was a lot going on. This was the, the day that uh, I learned the wrestler handshake too. Oh, God, the very um, limp handshake. The limp handshake. Chris Hero told me I had a very strong hand and I needed to <laughs> cool it down. Um, but, you know, then, like, Hero became my my fellow Duke basketball buddy, and we were good from then on. Um, but, yeah, this, this Roddy promo, I think it's important to, to mention just how far of a a growth he's made as a character. Yeah. And a, a promo and a presence because this is like just a pile of jello. And it's not an indictment on Roderick. Cutting a wrestling promo is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you have to rush through things to kind of get everybody else's promo stuff in during the day. But from 2006, when this took place, all the way to 2023, where we're at now with Roderick, I think it's important to note that not only is he a world-class, t- 
top shelf wrestler in the ring bell to bell. Now he's actually got like the ability to do a good promo, develop a character as opposed to just I'm Roderick Strong. I'm a good wrestler and I'm going to win. Yeah, because even like 10 years later, I think he had gotten to the point where he was like not a good promo, but like passable. And I think people, if you just watch them, then you go, oh, yeah, he's not a very good promo. But I, I would I would tell people like, look at this era where he was honestly like one of the worst promos on the indie scene and like realize how much work he put in just to get to like passable. And now, now yeah, like for whatever you think about that gimmick today, the AEW gimmick. It's the most charismatic and comfortable he's ever been on the mic in his whole career. And like, this is clearly a guy who worked really hard to slowly rise up from like, absolutely. If you watch this era, one of the most uncomfortable promos in, in, in the promotion. Yeah. Roddy to me, um, deserves so much credit for a guy that has never been complacent in anything or any aspect of his professional wrestling. Uh, presentation. He is nine times out of 10, the hardest worker in the room. And I think he would probably fight me for not telling him 10 out of 10 times. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I just, I wanted to circle back and, and give Roddy his flowers there. Cause yeah. he's this, this was, whoa. Yeah. And for uh, those like you might not know from the recap, but like for those who have not seen Roddy promos from this era, it's not always what he said. It's just a matter of he's very stiff and awkward. And it just, you know, like he's a wrestler, like some of the great wrestlers were in the ring. He makes things look effortless. His promos in this era were the opposite, where you could tell it's taking like every brain cell he has just to do a very awkward promo. Like it, as easy he, as he made wrestling looked, he made doing these promos look very hard, which I'm sure they were at this time, you know, because he was not a natural at them. And off camera, he was somebody that was like the light of the room because he was always laughing and joking and, you know, messing around and just being one of the guys. But that red light comes on and it's like 90% of his personality just fades to black and he can't get the words out. I heard people saying and, similar about Dean Malenko, right? Like he had this apparently yeah. Dean Malenko has this wicked sense of humor and stuff, but like oh, you would never Dean, know it. Like Dean's watching the him, funniest Dean's the funniest person I've ever been around in wrestling. Hands yeah, down. there are just some people that, for some reason, like you just said, when that light goes on, their personality changes, or they just can't transmit it to 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 an, an audience. But like, yeah, you turn the camera off, they're like the most fun, charismatic people. So we're we're on to qualifier two with Jimmy Rave, uh, who's looking for Prince Nana and a direction and delirious. And I like this match a lot, actually. Um, I, I I've been very critical of delirious as a wrestler for doing the same shtick over and over again. Mm. And I kind of compare him to the ultimate warrior in the sense that. It's very much a gimmick driven character, right? There no, there's no layers mm-hmm. to the ultimate warrior or to delirious at this point. And delirious would get layers when he would join age of the fall and start doing the red poison delirious. But delirious is coming off of what I felt was his best match in ring of honor with Adam Pierce. Um, that glory by honor. I thought it was his best match 
better than the matches with with Dragon. Um, I just thought he and Pierce had this awesome connection together. Uh, and they were like total opposites, so it really worked. Uh, and I was optimistic about him and Jimmy Rave as well, and they delivered. Um, but it, it's just the little things in this. Like when Jimmy Rave comes out, uh, he like almost kind of trips coming out like he's he's just showing the emotions of like the stress of he can't find prince nana he's you know been having all these matches in japan with dragon gate and you know long tour so physically he's beat up so it's a little thing that he does and it was intentional uh that starts so then you know as the match goes you know rave tries greetings from ghana uh, Delirious does the big over the top backdrop out of it, which I thought was a highlight to me because I always like when there's like counter move and it's so over the top that it's not necessarily like a super athletic visual thing. It's like the reaction from the crowd should make the spot mean more, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I felt was a negative was Rave tapping out in this. Like, he's just come back from Dragon Gate. And as soon as Delirious wins this match, I, in my head, I'm thinking to myself, oh, Gabe is going to have Seidel and Delirious close this show out. <laughs> and I just kind of shrunk in my seat from that point on. And that's not an indictment on Delirious or Matt Seidel. It's just it wasn't really what I wanted. Yeah, um, I like this match, I think, less than you. I, I would call this a very average match to to my mind. This felt like a real one of these guys is going all the way in the tournament. So let's give him an easy match in the first round kind of match. It, it, it's kind of tame, I would say, even by Jimmy Rave standards. We get. Delirious running around the ring, Jimmy bailing to the outside, multiple rave abdominal stretches. It's only 10 minutes long. Um, you know, the, the crowd's pretty quiet for it. I would say like they, they're, they're happy to see both guys make their entrances and they pop for the finish when uh, Delirious wins, but in the middle, they're pretty quiet. Um, and it's all, it's all capped off with like one of those weird finishes where Rave is really dominating and then Delirious wins kind of out of nowhere, but not in like a flash pin kind of way, but like just all of a sudden, you know, Rave's controlling, Delirious does a drop toe hold, a running knee, and then puts on a submission and it's over. And I thought, oh, that's kind of abrupt the way they were setting that up. It doesn't really build to, to something. I, I wouldn't say this was like a snooze of a match, but I wouldn't put it too far above a snooze either uh to me the most memorable part of the match was delirious grabbing a fan side that said rave will win and he tore it up and ate it during the match um so i props to you know very rarely do ring of honor fans bring signs to the shows in this era and especially someone that bring a jimmy rave will win sign so credit to that fan um matt what'd you think about the show i mean the match yeah, I definitely thought this was one of the first times of the night where I thought that, that the lack of crowd reaction hurt the match. I think it it hurt the energy of the wrestlers a bit. 
Um, and you know, I can't, I couldn't tell if Rave seeming a little bit lost in the gimmick without Nana was intentional or if it was, he was actually kind of lost in the gimmick without Nana. And that's why he, cha- you know, they changed the gimmick. Um, you know, I thought just the act just felt like it was missing something. And obviously there have been shows over the embassy's era where just Nana wasn't there for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, I just, you know, Daisy Hayes was good in the ringside, you know, she got her shots in, but you know, without Nana there, it just didn't quite feel the same way. Um, I did appreciate that Rabe didn't start the match immediately by stalling. You know, it kind of was something different. Although I did notice that every single match on this show started the same exact way with that kind of like slow, basic mat work, including the main event even. Mm-hmm. Um, not a ton of variety of wrestling styles on this show. Um, but um, I thought the work was fine, but I thought just it just lacked something, lacked some kind of energy, lacked some kind of heat. And I, uh, I think maybe it was maybe even too long given that, you know, not that it was such a long match, but maybe if it was like five minutes shorter, it, you wouldn't have noticed that, that sort of like sort of lethar- lethargy that you sort of got, you know, in a way that you might not expect from these guys. So I thought it was a solidly worked match, but still didn't really do much for me personally. So I that think- brings. I oh, think as well, I, I, just one other thing on yeah, Nana on, being completely wrapped up. Um, you know, the, the idea that not only is Nana not here, Sauronaro is not here either. And, yeah. you know, Jimmy is doing a quick match with Delirious and there's a lot of character work from Delirious. But a lot of what made Jimmy so great was being that cowering heel. And if he has nobody to really cower to, not to dissent from Daisy Hayes at ringside, but it's a little different if they had played that up more. And she was like the enforcer of the embassy more so than anything. So it just I don't know. I, I think just from a wrestling character polar opposite standpoint, I, I like the match. But yeah, there, the deficiencies that were there, um, they were not hit. No, that, and that's a good point too. Um, cause I've something I learned from an honorable mention, Jimmy Rave's interviews on that is like he was really into the idea of having a large stable of like, people you could kind of use in the matches, how he always made sure that like everyone had an involvement. So I imagine all of a sudden not having Salvernara here for this week and not having Nana there. It's like, you're losing a bunch of your toys, right? Yep. Um, uh, you know, it's just less pieces for him to work with, you know, not that he still couldn't have, he's had plenty of matches and did really well without people. But when you're used to it, you know, you go down from the stable that over, over the months had a bunch of different members to now this night, you have Daisy Hayes and that's it. Yeah, I imagine that would be a kind of a shock. But um, that brings us to their next Survival of the Fittest first round match. And I would say this was probably like, if you look at what our matches on this show would could have been possibly draws. Obviously, it's Joe Danielson up top. And then this is probably the only other one match that really had kind of a bit of like 
I don't know, tape selling appeal, possibly, maybe. And that was the Austeries defeating Christopher Daniels, scored during by Allison Danger, via pinfall in 17 minutes, 9 seconds after he hit a 450 splash. So, yeah, um, Jared David on commentary notes, this is the first t- time these two have ever wrestled each other in Ring of Honor, which is true. It also seems kind of crazy considering that they've both been major players there for years, although Daniels did have the big absence. But I will say... This was not the first time they had ever wrestled each other, period. In fact, most notably, they had wrestled each other at the 2004 Super 8 Tournament Finals. Daniels beat Aries in the finals, so they actually had a very notable match against each other before. But this match, maybe the most notable thing about it, is what happens before the match. Aries is, you know, you'll watch this match and you go, that doesn't look like Aries gear. That's weird. He's wearing, like, really tiny, small trunks. Like, what the heck? And his boots look weird. So Aries acknowledges this. He gets on the mic. And he tells people that his luggage got lost. In fact, Dave Prezak on commentary will later inform us that not only did Aries' luggage get lost at the airport, so did Brian Danielson's. And then he thanks Pele Primo for the t- loaning him a pair of tights, Bobby Dempsey for loaning him some wrist tape and knee pads, Mitch Franklin for loaning him kick pads, and Jake Christ for loaning him a pair of boots. So I did think that was kind of sweet of Aries where he went out of his way to tell everybody, like, here's every guy who's loaned me gear tonight so I could wrestle and what they loaned me. I thought that was, you know, we get on Aries a lot with his reputation of being a, a prickly pair, so to speak. But like, I thought that was a nice little cute gesture. So, um, I'm going to give this match the same review. I've given so many Christopher Daniels matches in this recent era of him and ring of honor, which is, it's technically good. Um, well, apart from Daniels having one of the most obvious spot calls I've seen in recent memory where, um, He's he's um in a headlock and they're bouncing off the ropes and he covers his mouth and you can just hear him yell to Aries go back down go back down and then of course Aries does a drop down um but it it's not this is not a bad match in fact I'd give it like the same low good I give the opener it's like a three star three and a quarter star match but the difference is. These aren't two guys still breaking into the top of the card, and they're not in the opener. These are two main event-level guys with 17 minutes to work with. And it's that same Daniel-style match where it's executed really well, and there just isn't a lot of surprises. Like, I would just say Daniel's matches in this period don't really delight you ever. They just kind of make you nod your head and go, yeah, that's that's done well. That's 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 good. Um, now, granted, maybe part of this is Daniel speaking of, like, Jimmy Ray being adrift at this point. Daniel's is kind of adrift at this moment. He has, like, no major storyline, no strong character other than Daniel's is kind of already an ROH legend and everybody likes him. Really, in this era, I was thinking, I was watching this match, I was thinking, he's, he's like ROH's Randy Orton at this point. Like, you watch him, you can see why he's so well-respected. Every move is executed really well. He seems like the safest pair of hands you could possibly have a match with in the entire company. He never does anything stupid, and the matches just aren't very exciting. Like, which is, I feel like, how I describe Orton a lot. And like Orton, at a lot of points in his career, he comes out to a big pop, and then his, the, the body of his match gets a more muted reaction, and then he gets a big pop at the end. And again, I, I, I always feel bad when I criticize Daniels during this era, but I'll say, like, long, I, I've enjoyed Daniels a fair bit in other periods. Like, long time through the years, listeners might remember, I gave Daniels second place for my ROH Wrestler of the Year Award in 2002. I think he was very important to ROH's success in the first year. I think he's a slam dunk for any indie wrestling or ROH Hall of Fame you want to conceive of. But man, he has a lot of matches like this where, where I just looking at my notes, that I always write right after I watch a match, I was struggling to find individual moments or threads or themes to talk about in a 17 minute match. I had just watched 
and look at my notes. The only thing I see in my notes that's really notable is I wrote, holy crap, I noticed it. I know I noticed it on a recent show, but Austin Aries back knee is horrific tonight. I was in pain for him watching him take bumps. So that's my review of the match. Um, well, Trevor, Trevor, I, so I rarely do this, right? But I have to call you out a little bit. So based on the review you just said, how is this match possibly as good as the first match? That the first, this match was like listless and boring, and you even said yourself there was nothing to talk about. How could you call like those two matches equal? I don't get it. Well, you know what? You, you know what? You have correctly called me out because th- uh, that, that's an example of me doing something that I will criticize people like Dave Meltzer for doing, which is I will. Dave Meltzer sometimes will do the thing, he did this recently, where he does the, I didn't really like this match, but I have to give it blank, four stars, five stars, whatever, because it's not my cup of tea, but it's this, and I'm normally, I think that's kind of ridiculous, like your your views should respect reflect your own opinions, that's all you can offer in life is your, on entertainment, is your own opinions, but it's weird. It's like 17 minutes. And it's like, I almost want to give it, you know, like Joe Lanza will call matches like this, the gentleman's three, where it's like, it's not a particularly good match, but it's like, there's nothing wrong with it. And they've done enough where you're kind of like, I have to give it that, but you are right. Like, if it's boring, there's something wrong with it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I I mean, but but do you know what I mean? We're like, no, Matt, I'm agreeing with you. The execution is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Like I agree with you. You are right because I enjoyed the opener vastly more than this. So the idea that I'm giving both matches roughly the same rating, like you, I, I, you are absolutely right to call me out on that. But I guess it's just one of those things where it's like, it's tough to review a match like this where if someone asks me what's wrong with this match other than what you just described, which is probably the simple answer, which is the base, it's kind of boring and listless. Like I can't call out like flaws. Like it's a very standard match where things are executed well enough. There's some action, like it picks up near the end, but it's just like, it's hard for me to give a, a super negative review for a match that I don't, I, 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 it's, it, this is just a hard. Daniel's matches are my bugaboo, Matt. So tell yeah, me, I mean, you know what? Make the case for me. Tell me what you thought about it. Yeah, I mean, like, I get what you're saying, and that, like, these are obviously like super talented professionals that will execute things professionally. But I can't say that there's like nothing to nitpick about it. Like, they work at it like a ridiculously slow pace, given what they're capable of. And given this is like a ring of honor show. So everything just feels like a degree less impactful than it should. Like, yes, some of the, uh, some of the, you know, and so the crowd's super quiet for it because the wrestlers are working like a match that you would be kind of quiet for because they don't really feel like intense at all. Um, you know, you could, it's quiet to the point where you could hear, Alice in danger, basically every single thing she says, because there's no other sound except for, um, except for her talking. Like, I'd say the most exciting or fun part of the match for me was the beginning part where there's a long sequence where Daniels is trying to escape a headlock and then they do some fun stuff with the Aries head scissors reversal, like where Daniels rolls out of the ring. And, and after he avoids the drop kick and he's like, it's not happening. Like that part is fun. But after that, it just gets quiet. You know, they hit their moves, they hit them well, but they hit them with a lot of just like time in between. There's just like kind of like a gingerly pace to it. Every move is done well. I will agree with you there. The heat seeking missile is really good. You know, the, the STO into the Arabian press is good. The avoiding of the brain buster, all good stuff. 
but it's everything between the moves and the intensity of the uh, kind of like the the vibe that the wrestlers are giving off that I think takes the match down. I would not say this was a bad match. Like they did, they worked hard, but like the pace was just half a step, uh, half a step slower than I think was optimal. And the fact that the crowd was already a little bit subdued didn't help. It was just, just professional work without any intensity. And you know, I wrote the same thing. This is an issue with a lot of Daniel's ROH matches. It's also in this era that we're reviewing sort of becoming an issue of some with some of Aries's too. Like I thought there was a little bit of that in the Richards match, even though I liked that match more than than you did. Um but even in that um that tag match where he lost to the Kings of Wrestling, I thought there was a little bit of a a, a lack of what he you know, that that kind of that pop that Aries kind of made himself distinguished by. Um, wasn't really there in this match, wasn't really there in that previous match. I mean, I, I certainly don't think this era lasts forever, but I do think this was sort of a slightly down era for Aries in terms of how good he was. And, you know, he'll be better in the main event for sure. But, yeah, I, 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 I'm not saying that these guys did a terrible job or this was even a bad match, but that first match was a lot of fun and this match wasn't. And so I, I just don't think that they're comparably good. Jeff, are we being too hard on this? What do you think? I hated this match. Oh my <laughs> god! I uh, so I I went back because when, when we talked about doing this podcast, I said to myself, "Okay, self, you have like three weeks that are just full of important family stuff and <laughs> you know uh, some work stuff, and you know you need to like block out a time to watch this show because and we." And we have- We've appreciated very much. Yes. <laughs> and to res- respect Trevor and Matt and the legacy of the three through the years podcast. Uh, and I have to, to say that, like, I've got zero memory going into this show when I put the DVD in to watch it of hating this show as much as I did. And this match is the perfect example of indicting this entire show from the opening of the DVD to the close of the DVD. This was 17 plus minutes of two very good wrestlers having a boring, emotionless through the uh, routine um, match. I, there was nothing to grab onto and say, I love this. I'm, I'm super excited. Like the idea of in 2006 of Aries versus Daniels, that's a DVD selling match. This match, you watch it. I would return the DVD. Yeah. yeah, If you bought the DVD to see this, you'd be pretty pissed. Yeah. And even sitting there live, like I looked at some of my notes that I would take. I would write them out as soon as I would either go home or I'd be in the car going to the next show. Um, I, I did not like this match and I thought both of these guys went entirely too long. Um, I, I really don't understand a lot of the pairings on this show. And this is one that I feel like they just, through through two names on the show, hoping that they'd have like a banger match that people could attach onto 
uh, and they did not deliver. Um, And, you know, Trevor, you mentioned Aries Backney. He could have just rolled on the floor and probably cleaned himself up a little bit. But (laughs) this was just not a good wrestling match. Um, It felt like guys going through the motions and doing a route, you know, all their hits, the, you know, Daniel's doing the STO and the uh, Koji clutch and uh, Aries doing the corner drop kick and the crucifix bomb. Uh, or not the crucifix bomb, but like his. Um, yeah, it was a crucifix yeah. bomb. Is that what he calls the thing? Yeah. 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 With the with the corner drop kick, the combination there. Um, and, you know, like the 450 even felt. Just kind of like, ah, oh, I'm going to go up to the top and do this 450 that I always do. And, um, this place was silent throughout the entire 17, uh, 1746. Yeah, it, it's it, this this went. I mean, it, it it went. It's one of the longest matches of the night, other than the main event and Danielson Joe. It's. 1709 uh, I got from cage match, but either way, it's over 17 minutes. They, they give them plenty of time to have a match here. That they did. So, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I agree with you guys. So in other words, good match. No, um, we now, uh, <laughs> we, we now join Brian Danielson backstage. He says he put survival of the fittest on the map in 2004 when he won the tournament and he made Austin Aries in a great match. He says Samoa Joe doesn't deserve a rematch against him after fight of their 60 minute draw fight, fight of the century, but it doesn't matter because even with all the injuries Brian's currently going to going through, he's still going to kill. He's still going to kill the legacy and the myth of Samoa Joe tonight. And he says after he beats Joe tonight in this non-title match. Joe's not going to deserve another shot at the Ring of Honor World Title. And then next comes out the Briscoes with Jim Cornette. Um, Cornette grabs a mic and he points out one fan, I guess, who's heckling him, and he calls the fan living proof of what happens when the fetus doesn't get enough oxygen. Jim says, as commissioner, he had some comments prepared tonight. He was planning to make an announcement as Ring of Honor commissioner. And at this point, his mic cuts out for the first time. It'll happen numerous times during this promo. And, you know, it cuts out for a second. And Cornette clearly is already annoyed by this. This is not the first Ring of Honor promo where his mic is cut out. Cornette bemoans that this is happening again. And he says, I'll fire the sound guy, too. Cornette points out he heard a small smattering of boos when he count, which, of course, draws a much larger smattering of boos. And then he calls out two fans' hats, I guess, again, fans who must be heckling him, saying, I, I shit in one and cover it up with the other one. Um, Cornette tries recapping recent weeks, and his mic cuts out again. At this point, he grabs ref Todd Sinclair, I felt bad for Todd, calls him Tubby, and then pulls him into the middle of the spot in the ring, saying, like, you know, like, that's the dead spot where, when I'm walking, that seems to be where the mic cuts out. So you stand the ted- dead spot, so I won't walk in it, which is, like, such a de- demeaning thing to do to a human being, basically saying, I'm just using you like a like a paperweight. Um, but I guess I guess it is a pretty good heel move now that you think about it. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Cornette talks about the New York fans turning on him at the recent show. Jim says he was standing in the corner of the building tonight watching all the matches, and people came up to him for autographs, but none of those fans came out to tell him that they were on homicide side or to say screw you, Cornette. So he thinks a lot of the fans that are here in Ohio that are booing him are a bunch of ballless cowards. Jim says he didn't come to Cleveland to be disrespected, and then he does the old Cleveland is the mistake by the lake hackney line, and then the la- says the last people the Indians beat is Custer. 
He says, it's funny that they have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame down the block when no rock star has come from Cleveland. At I looked, this point, I looked, I looked that up, and man, it's true. Like, there's really the Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch yeah, well, Nails were from Cleveland. Well, yeah, I, but 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 that was also like Filter, Tracy Chapman. It's it's a it's a surprisingly short list. I was I was surprised. Well, if um, you go down I-77 to the fine city, the Hall of Fame city of Canton, Ohio, and you go to the street that I grew up on, 48th Street, uh, Marilyn Manson grew up about six houses away from the house that I grew up in. So, so per, per capita, Canton's doing much better than, than Cleveland. <laughs> um, I guess, yeah, dollars and cents. So at this point, Jim points out a few fans that like him. He leans out of the ring to try and shake the hand of one in the front row, and the, the guy tries to shake his hand, and they both realize that even with Jim leaning, they can't shake hands, like they can't reach, so he just gives up. And then Jim gets some applause at this point near the end of the promo, but then a shut-the-fuck-up chant immediately follows, so that kind of shows you the mixed reaction he's getting. Um, Jim talks about going back to his beloved Louisville, Kentucky, and he calls Cleveland a stinking backwater town. At this point, uh, Cornet tells the Briscoes it's no longer him asking a favor. He's now ordering the Briscoes to injure Homicide in their match tonight, so he'll no longer be in shape to ring, win the Ring of Honor World title at Final Battle. Cornet says Homicide will rue the day he spit in his face, and he promises that Homicide will become a dead man before December 23rd and Final Battle. Uh... Yeah, I don't know if you guys have thought of this problem. Matt, Matt and I have been talking recently about, like, Jim Cornette's promos definitely feels like, especially since he got on this heel turn, for me and Matt, at least on rewatch, it feels like they've been getting kind of – he's trying to get past his his sell-by date here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this one was probably better than the last two. Like, it had a little bit more pep and energy, but still, it's just like a broken record. It's just – I'm just so over it. And, and you could just tell, like, based on the heat for the matches after them, they kind of seem to kill the crowds. Yeah, it, 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 it's just it, it's funny because the the build to the Cornet promos, like his heel turn was, you know, in the newsletters was like, you know, they're saying it's not going to be a typical heel turn, it's not going to be what you expect, it's not going to be a full heel turn, and even Cornet, I think one of those initial promos, like you're you're expecting us to turn me to turn heel, like do you, I really thought you'd think better of Ring of Army that we do such a hackney thing, and it's like a few shows later, like it's complete whatever you think of this promo, complete boilerplate. I. I- Call down the local crowd. I told Shit. you that the first promo, right? Didn't I say that? Like yeah. he, he was. He, there was. They were never going to try to do that. It was just. It would just be too complicated, and it wouldn't have worked. Because like it's like yes, I'm a. I'm not against any babyface except the top babyface in the promotion and all of the uh, people that are associated with him, which includes Samoa Joe. So it's like yes, he's going to be a heel, obviously. Yeah. But it's just, it's funny the way they sold it is like, you know, in a way they did a disservice by selling it. It's like, it's going to be different. It's going to, you know, we're not going to salt your intelligence. It's going to be, you know, unique. And then it, it's very much the heel guy running down every local town, talking about how he wishes he could go back to his home city with henchmen going after a top baby fist. Like it's, 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 it's the exact thing they said it wasn't going to be. Um, but anyway, that brings us to the match. Survive the first round tag team match. So both winners of this match go on to the next round. The Briscoes of Jay and Mark with Jim Cornette in their corner defeat Homicide and Roderick Strong in 19 minutes, 50 seconds when Mark pinned Homicide after hitting him with Jim Cornette's uh, tennis racket. According to the torch, Roderick Strong actually injured his back in this match. I didn't notice it during the match. I didn't notice that until I checked for notes afterwards. He actually misses the next show because of that. Um, Matt, what do you think about this as a match? 
Well, like I said, like I think those promos kill the heat. It was very quiet right away. Um, yeah, they, even though this is a heated feud, the match does start with headlocks, just like the other matches. It's like just to show the lack of variety. Um, you know, eventually they, um, you know, Mark does do a tope suicida, and uh, you know they do fight around ringside for a bit. But you know, Sinclair takes the chair away from uh, from Homicide, but Mark is able to use it and he throws it at Strong. But then it very quickly settles back into a regular tag match, and you know I. I hate to say it because you know how much, you know, I respect and love the Briscoes, but their matches during this era, like, it's just like there's, there's the, the form of the match just doesn't really work that well. It's just too formless. It's too back and forth. It doesn't really build in the way that their best matches do. And I think this is another example of that. Um, you know, there are some, there's some good stuff for sure. Obviously, these are all four, like, of the best wrestlers there are. So there's going to be some good stuff. Um, and it's, it's definitely not as boring as the, uh, Daniels versus, uh, versus Aries match. But in some ways I was just as disappointed with it because, you know, these guys could really turn it on if they had, you know, a really well thought out flow to the match. Um, but the, the crowd's just getting restless. There's, there's just a lot of back and forth. Homicide does the three amigos and then Cornette gives Mark the tennis racket and Hama, Homicide, like, so they're, they're getting to this point where they're teasing the, uh, that the time limit's going to expire, I guess, to set up what happens in the next match, which, you know, makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, they, uh, they, there's a point where they say one minute left and I didn't count. I don't know if you did. It felt like longer than a minute until they finally got to the finish, which is um, Homicide coming off the top, but Mark hitting him with the gut with the racket and pinning him with about 12 seconds left. Um, that last minute was uh, was kind of fun, but um, there were a few spots that were pretty dull in this match. Um, and it also felt like they were killing time to get close to that time limit. Um I thought the the quiet crowd was rough, but I also just think the match wasn't well thought out. Like I, I just I just do like I, I I hate to criticize any of these four, but I just didn't think this match was so well put together. Jeff, what do you think about this one? Added to the pile of, of the theme of the night where, you know, the, these are all four talented professional wrestlers and, you know, Jim Cornette has a, a reputation as a great manager and whatnot. But um, I think if anything, Jim Cornette is probably the greatest uh, guy at making me care so little about arguably the greatest tag team of all time. Um, this camp Cornette or whatever, you know, label you want to put on the, the Cornet Mafia, the anti-homicide mafia. Um, God, it's just so many things in this match felt like a disconnect to me. First of all, a tag team match to qualify for a match where it's, you know, six guys fighting for one prize. Um, makes no sense to me. I hated the idea of a tag team match in Survival of the Fittest. Um, to this day, I still hate it. Uh, when I 
watched this show back and I saw the card and I was like, oh God, yeah, they did do a tag team match for survival of the fittest. How ridiculous. Um, I love all four of these guys as individual wrestlers. I just think Jim Cornette cut the nuts off the entire match. And there's a, a AFI has a song called Killing Time. And that's what I felt like is the overarching song of the night for this show. Um, they're just killing time to get to the final two guys in survival of the fittest and everything else means way less. Um, the Cornette promo and law of diminishing returns. You guys both said it. Um, Heel Commissioner Act was stale in 2000. I don't know. When did Bischoff come to WWE? 2002, and it was probably stale, honestly, by like 1999, if we're being really honest. Yeah. I mean, I guess I was a little bit more lenient in like the late 90s with things. Um, But Jesus, I mean, we're in Ring of Honor in 2006, and we're doing a Heel Commissioner angle. And just a massive swing and a miss and fine, whatever. Um, you know, we, we, we get a tag team match out of it and the Briscoes are fine. You know, the tennis rackets, uh, you know, weapon we're going to use in 2006, not even a loaded tennis racket, just the tennis racket. And, um, we're going to hit Homicide, who's going to be the world champion at the end of the year. And uh, we're killing time as we try and get to final battle. So here's the thing. I like this match more than both of you guys. Uh, it was my favorite match of the show so far. Not by a ton, but I would give this like three and a half stars. Like I would call this a flawed, very flawed match that I had some real fun watching. Um Yes, Matt, like the match does start with the headlocks, but I felt very early on it kind of kicked into this crazy gear where once they spill to the floor, especially, but even like the 30 seconds of meant to before that, it's like all of a sudden everyone starts wrestling with this wild urgency, like everyone has ants in their pants. It's kind of scrambly. There's a bunch of spots where things don't quite hit perfectly, but combined with that pace, I found it like forgivable and kind of enjoyable in itself. I just like that kind of madcap energy. I like the brawl or outside the ring. And then when it, the okay, the thing I did not like about the brawl outside the ring is Matt, you touched on it is we get the usual thing where, Todd Sinclair prevents homicide from using a chair. Yet the Briscoe used chairs multiple times. And at least one of those times I saw it was full, in full view of the ref. And I get that the heels use a foreign object and the ref stops it. I mean, the ref doesn't see it, but then the faces use it and the ref catches it. That's a classic like wrestling trope that gets heat. But for that to work, the ref has to miss to not see the heels using it. Otherwise it falls apart. But anyway, when it got back in the ring, I thought it was still having that urgent energy. I liked for a while. And like you said, Matt, like I agree, like we've been talking recently on the show about this era of the Briscoes, this comeback era was a weird era where like they had kind of dropped any kind of psychology and structure for the most part and just went back and forth, back and forth. And some some matches recently we've watched, I feel like that really did not work for me. And some matches, it really did work for me. And this match, I felt like it did, like not to the biggest level, but it was just they were in this very dumb jock just do a lot of stuff with no psychology, work our asses off um, s- section, 
and sometimes it works. Like there's a sequence in this match that I think epitomizes this era of the Briscoes, which is this all happens in less than the span of a minute. Mark takes this crazy backdrop bump over the top rope to the floor, lands on his feet on the floor, then lets momentum carry him over till he takes a big crashing bump into the guardrail. Joe, I mean, Jay then hits homicide almost immediately with this great looking belly to belly superplex off the second turnbuckle. And then Mark comes back in the ring, jumps off the top rope with like a flying one leg drop, almost like a Mortal Kombat video game, like jumping high kick. And then he does some early redneck kung fu gesture. And that all happens in like, what, 45 seconds or 60 seconds. And to me, that's like 2006 Briscoes in a nutshell. It's just two guys working their asses off on offense, on bumping, going a mile a minute, doing cool stuff, nothing else. Basically like a more generous indie Steiner Brothers, I would say. But then, yeah, the match does slow down. The crowd is kind of out for a bunch of it, especially when the Briscoes take over. It's kind of a more sedate i do think roddy's eventual comeback was a little too minor before he made the hot tag again he he's selling for a while and then he just makes a comeback by hitting a chin breaker and enziguri out of nowhere and just oh now i'm gonna make a tag but again i felt like the match was flawed but fun it did i felt like parts of it had a real spark to it the brawling gave it a different flavor and i did really like that booking of you go right near the 20 minute time limit but to let the fans know, hey, just because we're going near the time limit doesn't mean the match is going to end a time limit draw, and you do that to set up the very next match, which is going to a time limit draw. Um, other thing I'll note, too, is... Oh, go on. Can yeah. I, uh, no, Trevor, go ahead and finish, because I, I just want to kind of make like an overarching point on this match a little yeah. bit. I'll just say also, uh, Prezek notes on commentary that these survival of the fittest match, survival of the fittest matches, they're all supposed to be drawn randomly. And he goes like, what a coincidence that the Briscoes end up facing homicide in a tag match. So Prezek is now playing into the idea that like Cornet's really corrupt. He's not only like trying to go after homicide, he's like, rigging random draws but the funny thing is the next match on the show is samoa joe versus brian danielson which uh, again by the conceit of the show is supposed to be a random draw and like project does not like question that at all like how weird is that that they just happen to get random draw when they're feuding against each other but he does for this match so i thought that was like a little bit of a weird thing but overall you know small complaint but jeff what were you saying so I think part of my problem with this tag match is not so much the actual wrestling itself. I mean, obviously, like the Briscoes would mature and get more intense and have a little bit more personality to them over the, the coming, you know, years. Um, so, you know, they're still in this baby Briscoe mode. But I thought what really threw the match off for me, especially rewatching it, was the complete lack of chemistry as tag partners that Homicide and Roddy had. Um, I, I just, I, I, and it'll, this will tie into something we'll, when we talk about the tag title match. Um, I thought Homicide and, and Roderick Strong were like just two singles wrestlers in the same match against two guys. Yeah. This very much felt like two singles matches for the price of one. <laughs> and I, I, the random draw thing on commentary was bizarre. Um, uh, maybe Dave was just like trying to find some material to use while they're taping, you know, 12 shows over the course of two or three days. Um, I mean, with the conceit you know, that's a random South drawing, couch. it would be weird if the Briscoes got selected to team together against Homicide. Yes. 
Yeah. Like, it's a good idea in theory if that was emphasized throughout the course of the show. That, you know, the random draw of, you know, Seidel right. and Davy Richards. They were on opposite sides at Gen Now and now they're facing. Yeah. Or you could have done a random draw and said, like, ooh, Seidel was, you know, a part of Generation Next and he's got to go against his, um, you know, former stablemate Austin Aries or, you know, I hate going to the well a third time in the same building, but Seidel and Daniels who wrestled right. each other twice in this place. Right. Like, right. And, just, and, and like, you know, like obviously not everything has to be as unsubtle as WWE, but when you try to do a thing where like somebody's rigging the draw, you know, remember at the 89 Royal Rumble when Ted, when the implication was that Ted DiBiase bought number 30 and they do a whole bunch right. of skits to make it clear that that's what's going on. So you're not just like, you know, throwing things out in passing. Like, if you're going to make that a plot point, you might as well make it a plot point. Yeah, he, Cornet could have mentioned it rather Absolutely. than being just an aside on commentary for a second. Well, and to Matt's point, like, you had time to do the Jimmy Rave vignettes throughout the course of the show. You could have had Jim Cornette going around making promises to people saying, like, hey, interested in a tag team title shot? <laughs> and then, you know, yeah. like a baby face turns him down because he knows what he's up to. And then like a heel somewhere in the mix is like like Jimmy Rave, for example. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, um, sure. I'll I'll take a world title shot if you give me, you know, and you can put, you know, a Briscoe in for me in a tag team match. I mean, there's a million different ways you could have even done like a comedy one where he Cornette tries to buy Delirious's spot, uh, in the random draw, uh, and gotten something out of it, you know, some sort of yeah. inside cheap pop. There's a million different things. And again, like, you know, we're covering a show from 17 years ago, but still like, this is not the Ring of Honor standard so far. Yeah. And well, that brings, let's see if he, it was a terrible on. crowd. It was a terrible crowd too for this match. The crowd was dead the entire 17, 18, 19 minutes of this match post promo. So, um, that brings us maybe we'll see all European changes with our final first round match in the survival of the fittest tournament. It's a, a non-title match. Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe go to a 20 minute time limit draw, which eliminates them both from the tournament. Uh, Jeff, this is a, you know, this was the big draw of the show. I would, I resume on paper other than just, Hey, you're going to see the turn, the whole tournament because, you know, this was the first rematch of Joe and Danielson after the 60 minute title draw tiles on the line here. Um, what'd you think about this? Well, so there's a, a couple of things. So remember, uh, uh, and I don't know if it came up in any of the, the research or not, but there, the Newswire had been promoting the idea that if Joe won, not only would he get a world title shot uh, for pinning the champion or beating the champion, he'd get a title shot whether he won survival of the fittest or not. So Joe could have technically two title shots if he were to beat Brian Danielson and win survival of the fittest. So he'd walk around with two money in the bank briefcases. Um <laughs> Just felt like a lot of doubling down. Um, this, this match is, it's good. Um, I don't think anybody can make any argument 
that it was a bad wrestling match. Um, I don't know that the idea of doing a draw makes perfect sense because you don't want to beat the champion. And I assume TNA was telling Ring of Honor, like, you can't beat Joe. So you got to do something. But then, you know, in my head, I think to myself, well, why are we putting them against each other if neither of them technically can take the fall? So uh, the wrestling itself, like Samoa Joe's my all-time favorite wrestler. Brian Danielson's the all-time greatest wrestler. Um, this match is happening in Cleveland. It's pretty exciting stuff. Um, crowd didn't seem to have the kind of enthusiasm that I do now talking about it. But, but more, um, enthusiasm, more enthusiasm than they did for other matches on the show, though. Yes. Uh, I would say this, uh, aside from the tag title match, this is probably the most emotion. And then the final sprint to the survival of the fittest. Uh, this is the most emotion you got out of the crowd. But even then, like it, it, it felt muted um, yeah. in comparison if this was happening in front of you know, an additional hundred people, uh, or, you know, an additional 200, depending on where you are. Um, there was a, a, a really fun spot where Joe goes for the muscle buster and Brian gets out and then comes with that top rope drop kick. Um, that fire up, you know, forearm that he does, uh, and then the, the crazy suplex that drops Joe right on his neck. Uh, I thought that little sequence was like the top highlight of this match. But from a common sense standpoint, they had a 60 minute draw. Neither of them theoretically going into this match can lose. Are they going to do anything other than a 20 minute draw that leads to a five man survival of the fittest? I don't know. I, I I didn't go into this show thinking we're getting an all-time classic Brian Danielson-Samoa Joe match. Nor did I think, upon rewatch, that I was going to like this any more than I did live and in person. Um, the crowd did not like the, the finish, that's for sure. Um, um, when Prazak says neither will be in the main event, there's an audible, Ugh. <laughs> you know, from the crowd. Yeah. So I thought this was like the house show version of this match. Like it's good. It's like three and a half stars. I would say it's the best match in the show so far. They give you like a nice moderate pace to do some mm-hmm. slow, slow mat work to start. Um, they build it up. They never go too crazy, but by the end, they are doing some of their bigger stuff. You're getting like the cattle mutilation. Danielson's breaking out the flying head, but, but yeah, this match doesn't really have a big emotional charge to it. It doesn't have a lot of urgency, especially for the two top guys that are supposed to be in the midst of a big feud. And it also feels like, speaking of the finish, it feels like the, the observer pointed this out too. So clearly people in the live report saying the men today felt this way too. It feels like they screwed up the timing of the finish because it looked like they were going for the classic, like, babyface challenger has the champ beat, but time expires finish, where Joe has Danielson in the choke as the time expires. Except when the time expires, 
Myers, Danielson's going for a DDT, and the bell rings, and it's like Joe realizes, fuck, that's not what the finish is supposed to be. So they just keep wrestling for like another five to ten seconds, and then he puts them in the choke, but it's like clearly well after the bell is rung. So it's like, it really felt like, oh shit, this was supposed to be the finish, so we're still going to try and kind of do it, but it doesn't really work when it's after the bell rings. Makes it, um, makes it, more, realistic. Makes it more realistic that it didn't work out that way, though. Yeah. Another interesting thing thing about this match to me is that they had uh, Joe go for both like the elbow suicida and the Olay kick, and both times Danielson just avoids them so the moves don't happen, which made me think they were doing like another classic wrestling bit, which is you the heel avoids like taking a big crowd-pleasing move from the face, and then later the face hits it, and so it gets an even bigger pop because you teased it. Because typically in wrestling, you don't tease stuff if you're not planning on delivering it later, and yet in this match, they don't ever do that. Like, like they tease both of them, Danielson avoids them. They never go back to, which is something I don't see too often in, in wrestling. Which I was like, wow, that's that's different. So should have sold overall, a couple hundred more tickets, and then they would have done the moves. <laughs> so maybe, maybe Joe was literally thinking, like, you know what? I'm not doing the a, a dive to the outside for under 400 fans. But um, overall, this is not I a. Yeah, I mean, overall, this is not a memorable match, but I do think it's kind of impressive in the sense that I think this is kind of the floor for these two guys. This is a mid-card match on a B-show in front of 375 people going to a 20-minute draw with Danielson working in shitty two small gear. He had to borrow something for someone else because his luggage got lost at the airport with an injured shoulder. And yet, still in my mind, it's probably the best match on the show so far. Like, that shows how talented these guys are. We're like, the floor for them is still the best thing on, uh, admittedly, not like a barn burner of a B-show. Um, also, I will say that, like, between Danielson wearing someone else's blue trunks that are way too small for him and him doing his sexy, like, party time hip swivel multiple times, this is the match for you if you're sexually attracted to Brian Danielson. So a little shout-out to anybody who's looking for that. Um, oh, Matt, what did you think about this? Who is not sexually attracted to Brian Danielson? <laughs> yeah. no, I don't want to meet him. Matt, uh, and I are, Matt and I are sharing a brain tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Matt, what'd you think about what do you think about this match apart from how sexy Brian Danielson can be? Well, I, I do want to mention the uh the gear because like I thought it was adorable. Like yes, it didn't look right, but it looked super old school. You know, he had no knee pads or anything like that. And even Jared David said he was like a, a throwback look and he was hoping that he would do some flying mares, which <laughs> he sort of does too at some point. But um and yeah. he does some great-looking knee drops without knee pads on this match. It's like yeah. it improved his knee drops. He did some unusual knee drops where he like he was yeah. like did like this running, jumping thing that you don't usually see him do, and he did a few in a row. I love how Danielson, you know, even then just would just pull out some just completely random shit, not just go to the well. I um I think if I saw this live in '06, you know, like for the first time, I'd be kind of disappointed with it because I, you know, very high bar for Samoa Joe and Brian Danielson, but like. Knowing now this was not one of their more remembered matches, I had a good time watching it. They, you know, especially compared to the matches that came before it, they, they, they had some personality. You know, Danielson always does. He was, he looked like he was having fun out there. They, they did move pretty quickly. He did pull out some interesting stuff. So I thought this was a, yeah, a, a good match, you know, and, and I could see why good would be disappointing for Brian Danielson and Samoa Joe. But if you go in not expecting more than that, and you know this has been a listless crowd. It's like, all right, crowd's a little bit more up for it than they were for other matches. They 
they are, you know, they seem to have some energy, even if it's not the most. The one thing I will say is, I kind of think Samoa Joe should have just won and been in the, um, been in the, the finals. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I get it. Like, if Joe had won, he would have to do a job in that match. But he was feuding with the Briscoes too. They could have done something underhanded and violent to take him out and pin him. I don't think it would have been that bad for TNA or whatever. And I think it would have been more satisfying for the crowd. I think it also would have made the main event feel a little bit bigger. So I think they probably should have just put Joe over here. I mean, what would have been the harm, really? And, um, I mean, when you talk about the post-match angle, I have some thoughts on that, too. But uh, I think that's my final uh, conclusion. I think Joe should have won this match. So I want to respond to one thing Matt said. Yeah, go on. I I wrote some notes today when I was on the treadmill, um, and I basically rebooked this entire show and kind of gave the finals a little bit of a reboot. Um, but Matt hit on the idea of having someone take Joe out, and the way I would have kind of repurposed this whole combination of matches. Seidel J. Briscoe opens the show. Seidel wins. Rave versus Mark Rave wins. Brian versus Daniels. You play up their history. Brian wins. Aries versus Delirious. Aries wins. Joe versus Davy Richards. You know, it's kind of like the Davy Richards litmus test. Joe wins. Roddy versus Homicide. The Briscoes cost Homicide the match, creating more heat for final battle. Survival of the fittest, Brian and Joe eliminate each other. So you protect not only the Ring of Honor world champion, but also whether Joe was X division champion or whatever it was uh, around this time in TNA. He's not being pinned. And I mean, we can talk about the rest of the survival of the fittest rebooking later. But there, everything that I wrote down is a reboot of the rest of the survival of the fittest has some sort of legs to the story. And I feel like there were no there's a lot of stake and stakes for survival of the fittest, but there's no sizzle to any of these qualifying matches uh, aside from Joe and Danielson. And, and it kind of, you know, basically cancels itself out with a non finish. Yeah, and uh, going to what Dave wrote in The Observer based on live reports, it echoes a lot of the thoughts we've given already, which is just fans hated that both were out. They apparently didn't time to finish right, and it wasn't their best match, but they can't have anything worse than a very good match. So um, going to the post-match angle, after the match, the fans and Joe did the usual. They call for five more minutes. Brian teases the crowd by holding up five fingers multiple times before he offers Joe a handshake in agreement. And, of course, he immediately just hits Joe in the head with the ROH world title. He beats Joe down with the belt. He then lays the belt over Joe's head. He then, like, stomps on the belt that's on Joe's head with uh, when he comes off the second rope. Uh, Brian gets on the mic and asks the fans if they want five more minutes. He then tells them they can kiss his ass. He stomps Joe one more time for good measure. Danielson poses as the crowd chants a little for Homicide, and an army of students and refs check on Joe. Homicide does not come out, and Joe's motionless. Brian leaves. Joe sells – I'll say Joe sells this huge. Like, Joe is stumbling. He needs a lot of help to get to the back. Like, Joe really sold this as, like, completely destroyed from a few belt shots. So, you know, they're they're trying to – 
you know, do what they can to heat up this angle. Matt, what were your thoughts on this? You were talking about how you had some thoughts for this. Have they done the whole, um, after every single one of Danielson's draws, have they done the whole, like, tease five more minutes and then he walks away and doesn't give it to him? I feel like they've done this every single time. Am I right about that? I guess the Nigel one at the end where they were very conciliatory to each other and Danielson was selling that he was, like, dead for five minutes afterwards. That one they didn't, but maybe the rest? Well, I mean, I, I know just, the Colt one, he's gloating that he never has to wrestle Colt ever again. Yeah, I mean, I just find it boring to do every single time. Like, I get that it's, like, the bit, but it's just, like, enough. I appreciated that instead of him just running away this time, he actually did more of a heavy angle and, you know, really beat down Joe. Um, but... Does it also make a little bit less sense for him to not want the five minutes at this in this match since, like, he wouldn't be losing the title if he lost and he'd be gaining an entry into Survival of the Fittest, which, you know, since he entered the tournament, you might expect he cares about winning. So I feel like it makes less sense for him to deny the five more minutes here than it does in his title matches. Yeah. Also, why is the world champion in a tournament, quote-unquote, to get a title shot, a shot yeah. at the world title. Yeah, that also doesn't yeah. make sense. Maybe, maybe if he won, maybe if he won, he could get a tag team title shot with somebody. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a very much a like Roman Reigns in the Royal Rumble match moment. Like, yeah, what's going to happen if he wins? Um, so it's now intermission at the show. Dave Prezak is backstage. Dave Prezak doing all sorts of work because he had to do the ring announcing tonight, having to do the backstage interviews, and it's a cute thing because all of Ring of Honor, um commentary is post-produced to try and keep the illusion that they're doing it live it's fine normally prezak has like a a line he'll say after each match like and so and so is going on to blah blah and on this show he makes a special effort to like sit out and be silent and let jared david do that because he doesn't want to risk like talking over himself as he announces the winners of these matches but anyway um Prezak is backstage. He previews tonight's main event. Jimmy Rave interrupts Prezak, demanding to know where's Prince Nana and Sal Renaro, and what's the deal with Daisy Hayes? And I wrote my notes, that last point is yeah. really bizarre. She literally escorted <laughs> him out to the ring tonight. Just ask her yourself. <laughs> I was thinking that, too. There that one, he's just like, dude, was she like, just like refusing to talk to him? Like, he, she's there, and then he's like, hey, Daisy, and she just runs away. That's the only thing I can imagine that would make that make sense. Yeah, so Rave just tells Dave, you know, find Jim Cornett for me by the end of the night. So, you know, again, very this is a very Gabe trope, which is someone is looking for someone, and you know, you'll you'll find the answer by the end of the night. You know, it, it's a classic Gabe one show story, and uh, yeah, so I don't know why he couldn't get the deal from Daisy Hayes, but. That goes to the dark match. This was the first match from intermission, not on the DVD. Irish Airborne of Dave and Jake Chris defeated ROH students Alex Payne and Rhett Titus. Uh, Jeff, you said earlier you might have had a story about this. It is interesting that the Irish Airborne could not even make the DVD, although I guess looking at the DVD, it was like three and a quarter hours, which is kind of like the upper limit usually when they also include a video wire. But what, what, what do you have anything to say about this match? Because obviously Matt and I did not see this. Yes. Um, so first of all, we can all thank Shane Hagedorn for getting Irish Airborne into Ring of Honor. Uh, so thank you, Hagedorn. Good job. Uh, and secondly, um, the reason this match did not make the DVD um, was because it was filled with blown spots oh. all through the five or six minutes worth. Um, you know, 
I, I obviously you guys know I am a huge fan of, of Rhett and a huge supporter of his. He's also a friend and uh, somebody that uh, I firmly believe has turned into one of the best all around in ring performers that's not signed to a major company for some reason. But this is less than a year into Rhett's debut uh, into his career. Uh, his first match was in January. Here we are in October, uh, 10 months in. And, uh, with, you know, Alex Payne, he hadn't even become Sugarfoot yet. Mm-hmm. So these two guys have a combined level of experience of, uh, I think a year and a half total between the two of them and Irish Airborne, probably not much more. Uh, the finish was on Alex Payne, uh, and even that was a mess because uh, whatever the Irish Airborne finishing double team move was, um, it, they missed Payne's head uh, by, I don't know, seven feet uh, when they were falling back to do the, the back bump on the mat. I think it was like a cross body with pain on one of the Chris brothers shoulders. And the one Chris brother was like going down, taking the bump as the other one was in the air and they just completely mistimed it. So the guy goes past Alex Payne, who's already on the mat and uh, one, two, three, the end. Um, not good. Just, and not even the fault necessarily of anyone but combined inexperience. Yeah, so you know, first off, Jim, I just want to say we've had uh, you know a bunch of people on that have seen these shows live. Congratulations on being maybe the first person in 120 episodes of Through the Years that really had a vivid memory of a dark match that, that <laughs> happened like a decade and a half ago. I will never forget this because it was. I don't want to say it was like the worst wrestling match I've ever seen because it certainly was not. Um, but it felt like four guys who just had no ex- no experience and no veteran leading them yeah. through a match. I, I I don't want to say that I hated it or it was terrible. I felt bad. Yeah. For. For all four of these guys, because it just was. Wow. Yeah, I get why you would not want to put that on Ring of Honor TV, but at the same time, it's like I feel like too often now wrestling companies avoid putting rookies in positions to fail. It's like that's how they're going to learn. You know, you can't protect guy. You you protect a guy forever. He'll never get good. You know, same even the Roderick Strong stuff like he cut a lot of bad promos. If you want to get decent, you have to cut. You have to do things to get better at things. Yeah, exactly. So um, that brings us back to the first match we got to see after transition, actually the semi-main event. Ring of Honor World T- Tag Team title match. The Kings of Wrestling, Chris Hero and Claudio Castagnoli, made their first defense of the titles, defeating Colt Cabana and Jimmy Jacobs, scored the ring by Ashley, I mean Lacey, in 17 minutes, 28 the ballot, seconds. The ballot of Ashley, we all love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. When uh, – when uh, Claudio pinned Colt after they hit the King Heroes Welcome Kings of Wrestling edition, which is basically just the Kings of Wrestling uh, neckbreaker variant, but with like uh, Claudio elevating the guy's legs off the canvas. So uh, before the match starts, 
Lacey rushes to the ring on her own. She grabs the mic and tells production to turn off that crap, the ballad of Lacey, right now. She says Lacey's Angels no longer come out to that miserable excuse for a song. She tells production to hit Colt Cabana's music. They do. Colt and Jimmy come out. Colt starts dancing with Lacey in the ring as Jimmy mopes in the corner. Colt grabs the mic and apologizes to Jimmy when he notices Jimmy moping. He goes like, I didn't mean to make you sad. You know what? This next dance with her, that's for you. Jimmy gets really excited. He's about to dance with Lacey when Lacey screams it. Like, I'm not going to dance with you. What the hell's wrong with you? There are things so much more important for you to be focused on right now. So they're really turning up the dial now on the idea of Lacey's really nice to Colt, like lets him do a lot of things that she will not let Jimmy do. And uh, also, we did mention this on the last episode, but the Kings of Wrestling, they started with the last show, I think, using uh, We Are the Champions by Queen as their theme, which was just fantastic entrance music for them. Yeah, it's, that, was their, that was their theme in other indies before. Yeah, this. yeah. It's so grandiose and boastful, and it has that long buildup, and you really should only use it for heel champions, I think, because it's so over the top in that sense, but luckily they are, and they keep entering through the crowd like they did during the CZW feud, so they're still kind of trying to sell that they're still in some way outsiders to the promotion, and Hero actually has, before the match, has Claudio put both their ROH and Chikara tag title belts in the briefcase Claudio always brings to the ring, and it's a funny moment as he legitimately, like, can't fit the belts in for a while, so he has to, like, fidget and do some luggage Tetris to make it work, but eventually he does. Um, Luggage Tetris. (laughs) You know, sometimes you gotta change the orders of everything to get it to fit right. So, um... I love it. So, uh, first off, this match doesn't make sense. Like it, uh, it does make sense for Jimmy and Colt to team together. It's a, it's an evolution of the story where Jimmy's obsessed with Lacey, wants to make her happy. Colt is dating or at least, uh, seeing Lacey. And so he kind of wants to make her happy and Lacey wants them to team together to win tag team gold. So that all makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is why a brand new tag team that's never had a match together before is getting a tag tile shot on their first night together. Of course, the only real reason is Ring of Honor's tag division at this point was fairly thin. But um, in terms of making sense, though, this match, I would say, is like a welcome adjustment in the Lacey Love Triangle storyline. Like, um, we've spent a few episodes talking about how no one in this Love Triangle feud has been likable, but they shifted here, like, noticeably. Instead, instead of Colt being, like, just gleeful that, like, how everything going on is hurting Jimmy so much and rubbing it in, he's actually sympathetic to him here. And, um, like... Like I said, before the match, when he sees Jimmy pouting at them dancing, he, like, tries to get Jimmy a dance. You know, during the match, Colt's, like, shouting legit encouragement to Jimmy. He's trying to get Jimmy involved in double teams and not pulling opponents out of the way anymore. At times, Jimmy is hesitant, but, like, it leads to a nice moment late in the match where Jimmy has the Kings of Wrestling on the ropes, but he's exhausted, and he needs to tag Colt in. But he looks at Colt, and he's like hesitant. He's like, I don't really want to tag this guy in. I still don't like this guy. But then eventually he does, and he does do the right thing, and he makes the tag. Of course, everything goes wrong late when Jimmy accidentally spears Colt, when Claudio leapfrogs um, Jimmy as he's making the charge, and that leads to Colt taking the fall. So there's, again, some simple, decent psychology here. But I would say overall, in just evaluating the storyline part of this, drastic improvement, because the storyline works a lot better when at least one of the people involved in a love triangle is likable. And at least on this night, they, they achieve that, I believe. As a match itself... I don't know. I, I enjoy it because I enjoy these characters. Hero's feeling healing is really fun here. He's just such a smug jerk to Jimmy early on, really trying to bully him as the bigger man. And again, I did like the Jimmy Colt storyline this match. 
I did like some of the early Matt stuff Colt and Claudio did where it did feel more like Colt doing kind of like the Orange Cassidy kind of vibe where he's doing comedy, but it's not just like comedy separate from the match. Like it's comedy where he's kind of like psyching his opponent out or fooling them or it's it's using it to his advantage. Little things like Colt just like um trying to kip up and then realizing he could just push the guy's leg off of his head during a head scissors or doing an incredibly slow drop down to the mat, but then leg tripping a kind of confused claudio um but overall okay just to sum up the match though is slower paced and more meandering than you might expect and it doesn't really build to a huge crescendo like you might hope and the middle third of the match when the kings of wrestling get control even though their signature offense is fun and they run through some of it i felt like it lost some momentum and flow and the crowd was kind of blah for it itself overall it's like a two and three quarter star match like i had some entertainment but this is coming right off that Kings of Wrestling tag title change against Aries and Strong that we felt was a little bit um, disappointing. This is another match where even though I really love the people involved, this just did not click. Even though they fixed the they fixed the storyline part at least for this night. Um, Matt, what do you think about it? I guess where you were on the Briscoes tag, I guess that's where I am on this one. Like I liked it a lot more than I think most people did. I um, but like it was a big deal for me that they decided to pull back from Colt being a total prick. It made the storyline so much more palatable to me, like that he was being, you know, sympathetic or empathetic to Jimmy. Um, and just, yeah, I could, ju- and not being quite as pervy and weird with, um, a- Ashley, I mean, Lacey, um, <laughs> There was the um, there was the part where Gabe got on commentary and was like, "Any word if Cabana and Lacey are going to be in the shower again later?" Which, as I mentioned before, imagine hearing your boss say this about you. But then at the same time, I think it's like, "All right, well, this was still in the 2000s, where as a creepy boss, it was impossible to outdo Vince McMahon, so yeah. nobody nobody would notice uh, Gabe doing it really. So I guess that you know that's why he could get away with it." back then um but yeah one other thing i liked about the match like you mentioned hero was you know doing a really good job being a heel i also liked that he did tone down the goofiness in this match he wasn't like preening after every spot the way he did in the generation next match he wasn't you know doing the knee walk you know he was just being a heel and being dominant and kind of just being like a obnoxious wrestler and jimmy really played off of that well um, you know, like that, in fact, the comedy stuff in the match was really more targeted toward Claudio, where at the beginning, you know, Colt was doing like, got your nose and like Claudio mm-hmm. was acting all upset. Um, but so I, um, I really appreciated that Cabana toned down the, uh, the, uh, prickishness. Hero toned down the shtick and they had much more of just like a tag team match. And just in general, I think the storyline wasn't as, you know, heavy as it had been in the other matches with Colt and Jimmy. There was, there were no spots where they were trying to embarrass each other. They, you know, obviously Jimmy was still sort of like the sad sack, but they were wrestling and trying to win the match. And, um, yeah, I don't think this was a great match or anything, but I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I didn't like it as much at the time. I, I also think like, okay, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Hero has had better matches than this in ROH in 2006. But I think other than the Danielson match at Hellfries is over, this might have been his best just straight up like wrestling performance of the year so far in ROH. Mm. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about it? 
So remember the the part of the show earlier where I said I think Matt and I share a brain tonight? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to say what Matt said. Um, because I agree with every single solitary note he put on this match. Um, one thing I will add, um, I remember in the Newswire when they, this match was announced, they said that Lacey had used her business expertise. I mean, Ashley had used her business expertise <laughs> to get Jimmy and Cabana a tag title shot uh, so quickly after the Kings had won the tag titles. Um, and it, it actually may have just been they were getting a tag title shot no matter who the champions were. And now all of a sudden it's the Kings of Wrestling. Um, I thought the big takeaway for me from this match, first of all, Ring of Honor was so lucky to have the music that they had because it adds so much to the the eccentricity of Ring of Honor. The music just fit all the characters so appropriately. The champ is here for Samoa Joe. And then Mama said, knock you out later on. Uh, Copacabana for Colt. Um, give me back my bullets for the Briscoes. We are the champions for the Kings. Um, Final Countdown for Brian just works. It just, there's something organic about all of those things that they just work. And, to have the Kings come through the crowd and to have this kind of match. I love this match. Not that it was a great match. I loved it because it was so different from every single solitary other match on this show so far. And it genuinely felt like the first time, even though I had seen Claudio a lot in the previous, I don't know, maybe three or four years, uh, maybe eh, probably about three years that I had seen him work um, dating back to WXW. The thing that I took away from this night was Claudio Castagnoli and watching it back on DVD really reinforced this uh, in, in present day terms. Claudio Castagnoli is probably the best tag team wrestler that exists in wrestling he's done it with two different completely different versions of the kings of wrestling he did it with aris as swiss money holding the bar um with uh sheamus in wwe was great he and jake hager uh were a great tag team and in this match the the comedy stuff that claudio did balanced out the serious wrestling that Chris Hero did. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I thought oh, you had you had comedy from Cabana too, because it takes two to tango for that, but you also had really, really good wrestling from Claudio. And it just I remember very vividly like this match ending with the, the finish that it had um, post, you know, the, with the post match attack from BJ and just thinking like, oh my God, these Claudio and Chris Hero are so good together. And yes, like this was another tag match, but 
in the ways that I did not like the Briscoes against Homicide and Roddy, where it felt like a tag team against two singles wrestlers in one match, this was the polar opposite. It was a great tag team against two singles wrestlers working in a story together without the goofy love triangle ruining things. And I thought this was probably my favorite thing on the entire show. So, um, wow. Um, uh, one thing I want to point out of the match, uh, I forgot to mention, this is just a little dumb thing, but there's some fan that's heckling Hero during the match. It must be someone that's like saying something like you're gay or something. And Hero just t- t- yells at the fan, sorry, buddy, you bought a ticket to see me wrestle. Who's gay now? <laughs> I love the idea that like, if you buy a ticket to watch wrestlers, you must want to have sex with all of them. Like, I, I, I love that, like, that was his comeback, like, you're watching wrestling now. Now you are the gay one, sir. But um, after so, the match, so Trevor, I I, I just want to mention something real quick too. One of the big problems with the Cleveland wrestling crowd during this kind of 2005 2006 time frame was you had a very serious level of jealousy from the local independents that Ring of Honor could come in with some of the talent that they also used on their indie shows, but brand them as Ring of Honor talent. And we've seen it on some of these Cleveland shows, like with Chandler Biggins, may he rest in peace, heckling away. There was another promotion that had split off uh, from AIW, uh, and the name of it escapes me. It it didn't last very long. Um, That would take guys to the shows to disrupt. And, you know, if flyers happened to be put on cars outside of some of these indie shows, those flyers were taken away. Uh, They would send students out during the shows to kind of, you know, sabotage the ring of honor flyers. It just, I, I think it looking back on it had a really negative, um, effect on everybody's crowds because i didn't go to a ton of indie shows based on some of that behavior for a while ring of honor stopped coming so then i would start going more and more and it it kind of became more of a social thing as opposed to going to see wrestling um but i i do i think fans like that and i don't know the specific fan you're you're talking about and i don't think he you could see it. I don't think you could see his face when. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. Hero, heroes, yeah. I, I really wonder if it was somebody that happened to be on an indie wrestling roster in the area. Wouldn't well, shock. There's there there may be few grudges more petty than uh, the grudges between independent wrestling promotions, but um. After the match, BJ Whitmer's music hits. He does a hobble run into the ring with his surgically repaired ankle that is not fully healed yet. Jimmy drop kicks him in the injured leg and goes to attack him more when Colt stops him, you know, because, you know, Colt's kind of friends with BJ in, in the world of Ring of Honor. So Jimmy tells Colt and BJ both to fuck off. He's very pissed off. He just goes to the outside, but he's clearly pissed, has a bit of a tantrum. So, yeah, continuing the BJ Whitmer storyline. And as we, I think we talked about in a recent episode, I went and watched the, uh, BJ Whitmer shoot interview from Smart Mark video. He, again, we talked about this. He mentioned how 
you know, he was not ready to come back at this time, but ROH was like trying to keep giving him payday. So they were like, Hey, since you're going to be in the area, if you can come to these shows, we'll just have you do like a random segment where you want to wrestle, but we'll pay you your full rate for this weekend. And BJ apparently was very appreciative of them making that gesture, which he would stress is a very unheard of gesture in independent wrestling for people to pay you when you're hurt like that. But, um, Terry so, Silkin, the most generous man in all of professional wrestling. Yeah. So uh, that brings us to the main event. Survival of the Fittest 2006, the finals, the five-way elimination match. Delirious defeats Austin Aries, Jay Briscoe, Mark Briscoe, Matt Seidel in 34 minutes, 51 seconds to become the 2006 fi- uh, Survival of the Fittest uh, champion or winner, whatever. The eliminations went as followed. A Jay Briscoe eliminated Austin Aries via pinfall in 11 minutes, 17 second, seconds after the Briscoes hit him with a springboard doomsday device. Matt Seidel eliminated Jay Briscoe via pinfall in 19 minutes, 4 seconds with a victory roll. Seidel then eliminated Mark Briscoe via pinfall in 23.06 after he hit a Seidel shooting star press. And then Delirious eliminated Matt Seidel to win the whole thing via submission in 34.51 when he made Seidel tap out to the Cobra stretch. Uh, Matt, this was the final. Big, long match, you know. What did you think about this one? All right. Well, first of all, um, very early in this match, um, Dave Prasak decides to mention that many have pegged Seidel and Delirious as the next Punk and Cabana in ROH. And that prediction sounds a lot more ominous now <laughs> than it would have uh, 17 years ago. Um, as I had mentioned uh, earlier these matches starting out the same way. Once again, you have just Delirious and Matt Seidel doing this lengthy, slow wrestling sequence. And again, like, this is a normal way to start a wrestling match. Don't get me wrong. But, man, you gotta get, you gotta, you know, note what else is going on on the show and do something a little bit different to start. I don't know which of the matches should have done it, but maybe not this one, but it did start the same way as all the others. Um, you know, what you get here is, what makes sense logically, which is that the Briscoes team up to battle everybody else. You know, one at one point they throw Seidel over the top rope. I mean, excuse me, they throw Delirious onto the top over the top rope onto Seidel and Aries. You know, then they work over Seidel for a while. They work over um, Aries for a while. Aries fights back. He baits Mark into hitting Jay with a, uh, a clothesline, and then he hits Jay with a drop kick. Um, at one point, Aries goes up for a 450, but Mark pushes him off the top rope, and that allows the Briscoes to hit the springboard doomsday and get the pin on him pretty early in the match. So, you know, good for Aries for being willing to take a very clean pin very early. He really did very little in this match, which makes it even stranger to me that he really didn't also do – wasn't super exciting in his first match of the night. So this wasn't the best showing for uh, for Aries. Um, I guess we'll see how he does in the title match the next night. Maybe he was just saving himself for that. Um, but, you know, then we get the uh, the Briscoes versus Seidel and Delirious in a tag team match. I mean, again, it's logical. It makes sense. But my favorite part of this sequence is right at the beginning of it because you have Delirious and Seidel sort of like sitting outside – um, like leaning against the guardrail and it's sort of a fairly cinematic moment because you have Delirious just like ranting at, ranting at Seidel in Delirious about teaming up against the Briscoes and Seidel's <laughs> acting is hilarious. He's like, really? Are you serious? Let's do it. And then, um, and then they charge the ring. So it's just like, it's just a very Matt Seidel and Delirious moment and it's cute. Um, 
so they get this tag team elimination match going. And, you know, Jay tries to break up a Seidel delirious double team by kneeing Seidel from the apron, but Seidel kicks him off the apron. Um, then they get the advantage over Seidel pretty quickly. Crowd pops pretty huge for what is a really fucking awesome split-legged corkscrew leg drop by Mark on Seidel, who is on Jay's knee. Just a crazy-looking move they actually show a replay of. Um, yeah, one of the best versions of that that I've seen by Mark. Um, so that was a real highlight of the, of the whole show, honestly, in terms of wrestling moves. Um, there's another cool spot where Mark goes for the inside-out double stomp onto Seidel, but Seidel rolls onto the apron, so Mark just slingshots again back over to the outside of the apron for the hit to hit the stomp. I was really enjoying the Briscoes much more here than I did in their earlier match. Um, I thought Marcus in particular looked really good. Um, uh, Seidel at one point runs right into a military press Death Valley driver by Jay. And again, you know, the Seidel acting while he's in the military press, he's yelling, shit, shit, shit. Um, so, uh, so then Delirious makes the save for Seidel. Um, uh, there's another point where the Briscoes go for the springboard, springboard doomsday device, but Seidel victory rolls Jay to get the flash pin, which I think was a good spot set up earlier by how they beat Ares. And so now it's Seidel and Mark and Delirious against each other. So Delirious and Seidel continue to work together to eliminate Mark. And at one point, Seidel has Mark in a hold, but Delirious pulls back the bottom rope. So Mark can't reach them. And Mark yells, where are them fucking ropes? Uh, so <laughs> more more great acting by the uh, by the stars of the Ring of Honor cast. Um, uh so Mark hits a springboard ace crusher off the top on Seidel, and Delirious makes the save, which is a bit less logical to me than when uh, he would have had to face the Briscoes two-on-one earlier. Yeah. But I guess, I guess it does still make some sense that he'd rather fight Seidel than Mark. Maybe he trusts him more to be a sportsman. I think that makes some sense. And it finishes just completely clean. It's not like a sudden flash pin. It's just Delirious hits the panic attack on Mark in the corner. Seidel immediately follows with the shooting star press. And Mark is eliminated. Now, this is the part of the match that if anybody remembers this show at all, they probably remember. And I could see, um, you know, different people reacting differently to this. Um, it's basically this balls to the wall. We're going to hit all of our moves and do a lot of kickouts. And I can, I know some people don't like that style. It's maybe a little bit psychologyless, but it's been a long time since they let two up and comers in ROH do something like that. And I would still call in this point side Alan Delirious up and comers. And so I honestly appreciated it. Like I liked that instantly, as soon as Mark was eliminated, Delirious just did this crazy cross body that sent them both over the top rope to the floor. It was sort of like a statement of purpose. Like we are just now we are doing something we you don't ever see us do. Cause Delirious and Seidel wrestled at, um, Epic Encounter 2 in St. Paul a month and a half earlier. And, you know, I thought that they could have done a lot better. And this is them basically saying, we're just going to do everything. We're not going to hold back. And so I really enjoyed it. I, you know, it's just, you know, Seidel uh, does the moonsault into the crowd. He, uh, he does a standing moonsault, but Delirious gets his legs straight up. Um, here it is, driver gets a two count. Jumping Rana off the top is blocked by Delirious. And then Delirious jumps off and hits the, and then, and then hits the panic attack and then a second one and gets a bizarro driver, which you really don't see Delirious doing that much. That got a two count. 
and they, they do the strike exchange with a dueling chant. They simultaneously hit big boots and get knocked down. Seidel kicks out of a roll-up, and Delirious immediately locks on the Cobra stretch. Seidel makes the bottom rope. Um, Delirious goes up top for Shadows Over Hell, but Seidel stops him, and Delirious headbutts him off the top rope and actually hits the Shadows Over Hell. And Seidel kicks out, and Delirious immediately floats back into the Cobra stretch. And you think the finish is about to come, but they keep going for a while longer. Seidel reverses it into a quick pinning combo, and they do a few roll-ups. Um, and then Del- Seidel hits the standing moonsault, gets a very close near fall that the crowd definitely bought as for the finish. Um, goes back up for a moonsault belly-to-belly, which the story of the match, and the, the announcers do a good job of putting this over, that Seidel beat Delirious both times in their singles matches with the moonsault belly-to-belly. And also they mention that no one has ever kicked out of the moonsault belly-to-belly. So Seidel goes for that. The Delirious pushes him off. Seidel comes back up, hits the, hits it. Delirious kicks out for a really great near fall, a really good reaction, at least by this crowd's standards. Um, and they knew the story, you know, that it was almost like Kenta with the uh, go to sleep on a much smaller scale. So I appreciated that even in this kind of psychology free segment of the match. Um, there was some psychology and you actually got your first ROH chant of the show after that. Um, and then Delirious caught Seidel up at the top, pulled him down for the chemical imbalance too. Another move that you just don't see him doing that often in this era gets a near fall. Um, Seidel goes for the shooting star press and Delirious moves, gets an Oklahoma roll for another two count. They do another wacky series of reversals and Delirious locks in the Cobra stretch for a third time. Seidel taps out. You know, I mean, you could tell by just the recap, they, they, they just threw everything at the wall. And again, I could see why somebody might not like it, but I found it refreshing just because there was a lot of holding back on this show. There's a lot of holding back in some of the other matches these two have had. And it was nice to see these guys feel like they didn't have to hold back. And it felt like a big moment for Delirious. So I thought it was a good capper to the show. As far as the rest of the match, um, I thought it had some pretty good psychology. I don't think the action was that great. But I, I did think the Briscoes looked better, and that split-legged um, corkscrew leg drop by Mark was breathtaking. Like, it was such a good move. Yeah. So so overall, I thought this was very good. Jeff, uh, what do you think? So I, I am right there with Matt again. Um, I thought the final 11 minutes uh, after Mark was eliminated was sensational. I do think the wrong guy won the match, and I'll expound upon that here shortly. But, um, you know, obviously there's 23 minutes of, of a match before you get to the final two with Delirious and, and Matt Seidel. And if you look at Austin Aries combined uh, 28 minutes or so in the ring on this show, I don't know if... Um, he had such a bad stretch of 28 minutes in his entire Ring of Honor run up until this point. Um, and going forward, I certainly don't think until he would do kind of the heel turn and the, I don't know, mixing of the Austin star, Austin Aries persona circa 2009. Uh, I don't think he was ever that bad. Uh, this was not a good night for Austin Aries, and maybe he was a little salty about not having his gear, and I certainly can 
empathize with that, but not a great night for Austin Aries at the, the old ballpark, if you will. Um, I like the idea of the Briscoes against Seidel and Delirious. I'm actually really surprised Gabe never went back to that after this show. Because uh, I think it probably would have been a really kick-ass tag team match um, from an athletic pro wrestling standpoint. Um, and I don't know if Delirious ever booked that match when Seidel was in Ring of Honor uh what like a third third or fourth run if you will um but i will say i love the spot with mark and the ropes where those where those fucking ropes i thought that was such a great line the talent i think all across the show from the opening match to the main event was more verbal than usual because it was such a small crowd and you needed to get the crowd ramped up um you know, get them to be twice as loud so that it sounded like there was twice as many people there. So I saw, I thought all of the talent on this show did a good job interacting with the crowd and trying to get them involved and, and get their emotions up. Um, but to me, the, the perfect encapsulation of why I think this is just such a miss of a show is delirious winning survival of the fittest. You have a chance in, in Ring of Honor where it's, you know, quote unquote serious professional wrestling. A character top guy doesn't fit, especially one that's got no sense of realism to him. Like, I would consider Homicide a character, but he's a believable, real person, street thug from. Bed-Stuy, do-or-die, Brooklyn, New York. Delirious? Eh. I thought Matt Seidel, as the winner here over Delirious, uh, would have been awesome. It could have skyrocketed him to the next level. But as far as the actual wrestling of the final sprint, that final 11 minutes, man, that was that was incredible. Um, I'd put it up there with, you know, some of the best uh, matches that Ring of Honor brought to Cleveland. If we're just taking that final 11 minutes, um, the crowd was into it. Like uh, Matt said, it was the first Ring of Honor chant, ROH, ROH chant of the night. Uh, people were actually standing for a lot of it, which they had been sitting on their hands most of the night. Uh, no fault of the talent. Uh, in the ring, uh, just a bad crowd. Um, but this survival of the fittest being a five man match bothered me. Um, it didn't feel like it had the top guys the way the previous two years had. Uh, and that took away from it. Um, and I, I would also stipulate that both the Jim Cornette promo and the weird finish to Joe and Brian. I don't think the crowd was willing to be more forgiving than they should have been uh, as a whole. But uh, I think Delirious and Seidel, boy, if they were going to pull in that crowd, they certainly did as best they could. 
Yeah, to me, I agree with a lot of what you guys say. Um, my points might be a little different. To me, this was two matches. The first was an elimination match that I really didn't like that much at all. And the second was an 11-minute sing- singles match that I think on its own, I probably would have said was the clear match of the night and nothing else even would come close to on the rest of the show. So, like, one thing I've mentioned in the past re- from rewatching all through the all these shows for through the years is I think one of Gabe's biggest strengths is that when he's at the top of his game, he's fantastic at booking big, complicated matches with a lot of different people and a lot of plot threads going in and out of them, things starting, things ending, all that stuff. I think like the four-way Iron Man at crowning a champion is one I always reference. Um, that's the first great example of that. The first survival of the fittest in 2004 is a great example of that. It's weaving, you know, starting storylines, continuing storylines, and then the Cage of Death match we just saw a few months before this in the timeline. Another great example of that. This match is not one of those. Like, this match doesn't resolve any ongoing feuds. It doesn't really build any feuds coming in or out of it. Like, a lot of wrestlers in this match have history together, but not really, there's no real significant story between them at the moment. Like, Seidel and Delirious came into wrestling and ROH together, and Seidel had recently beaten Delirious, so there is a little bit, but... They weren't, like, in a program with each other. The Briscoes are a tag team, so they have a connection. Aries and Seidel are former stablemates. So there's, like, a lot of affiliations, but there's not a lot of ongoing feuds here. And, and Jeff, earlier in the show, you are talking about how, like, this survival of the fittest felt thrown together at, like, the last minute or maybe not the last minute, but later. It did feel like in this match, like, you know, the match was just there to have a match compared to some of the other big multi-man matches gave his book where it really felt like, oh, a lot of planning has gone into this and a lot of things are going to come out of this. This didn't feel like that. But, of course, you can tell a self-contained story, right? Like, you can tell a story that just begins and ends in one match. That's a great way to do wrestling, too. And they kind of do in this match. Like, the story is the Briscoes plan to use their partnership to get down to the being the final two people. And when Aries is eliminated, like Matt mentioned, Delirious immediately knows what's up, which is kind of refreshing. Like the faces immediately know, Oh shit, this is exactly what they're going to do. And then Delirious, like that's in Delirious. He has that adorable moment with Seidel where he's like, talks him into teaming up. It makes complete sense. Even when, so like even when Delirious is breaking up the Briscoe pen attempts on Seidel, it makes complete sense because you're like, okay, if it gets down to just the Briscoes against Delirious or just Seidel, they're screwed because it's going to be a handicap match. But Matt, you kind of forgave them more. When it was just Mark Briscoe and Seidel and Delirious, when Delirious is breaking up Matt Br- Brisk, Mark Briscoe pinning Seidel, I did feel like, that, that, that's back to not making sense. I get what you are saying about how, like, maybe he trusts um, Seidel to be more of a good faith opponent, but I felt you know, I, I felt like that's kind of stretching it. But um, anyway, the problem is the plan almost works out too well. Like, I felt like the match wasn't really dramatic in the working of it because it's like Mark Briscoe kind of just gets dominated. He makes a little comeback, but like it doesn't go too long. And, and, and there's not a lot of drama to the baby faces team up against, against the heel and make short work of him. But the, you know, it makes sense. There's just not a lot of, of drama or excitement to that. Likewise, like the first 10 minutes, the choice they make in this match to have Seidel and delirious wrestle for five minutes straight to start in the match it's a, like there's a, some things in this match where they make sense. They're just not exciting. Like 
it makes sense that you kind of book in the match with like, they start the match together, they end the match together. But it also means like when Aries, as you guys have t- talked about, when Aries is the first elimination, like 10 or 11 minutes in, it's like he's barely worked in, in, in the match. And you're like, well, that's weird, and I, and I can imagine some fans may even feeling a bit cheated. Like this is like the biggest star in the match in the main event, and he barely does anything. And again, it's a it's a kind of a cute thing because they're building it up of like, oh, Aries has been in the final two of the first two um, survival of the fittest matches, and yet here it's like swore it's like a classic kind of Gabe switch of like, well, I'm going to do the exact opposite here. I'm going to have him be the first guy to get eliminated. So it out of and and there's even some nice psychology there where um. You know, Ares takes the Doomsday device, and then later Seidel, when he's up for the Doomsday device, he reverses it into the victory roll to get the pin. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I'm like, I nod my head and go, that makes sense. But I just felt like the match, other than like Matt, I completely agree. Mark Briscoe was like the star of the body of the match before it got to the final two. I thought that movie did was great. I thought he just had a lot of fire. But I felt like the work in the body of the match, you know, like multi-man matches, I always say they can succeed on one of two ways. They can be really balls to the wall spot vests, or they can tell like a really intriguing, intricate story with all the players. I thought this was neither. I felt like this was just, you know, whatever it was, 20 something minutes of just mid tempo, decent action with a couple high spots and a few little story threads, but didn't really feel like it, it just, I don't know. It, I, I, if I had to give a star ring to the, to to the body of the match before it got down to side down delirious, I'd give it like two and three quarter stars. But then if I, when you go to the final, you know, we continue this trend that we've had in the first two survival, the fittest tournament finals, which is the final two guys basically get to have an entire match on their own. And I felt like now you were mentioning how you could see how some people wouldn't like that. And I agree. I could see why some people wouldn't like it. I really liked what they did in the final 11 minutes, which is, as you said, like just a balls to the wall. It was like the last 11 minutes of a 25 minute main event match. It was just the most exciting stuff. Them kicking out of every finisher, you know, hitting every big move. And like you said, they set the tempo. Like it's like they flick a switch because as soon, like you mentioned, as soon as it's the final two, Delirious does that huge cross by that takes them both over the ropes and they just start brawling on the outside it's a complete like shift in 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 the tone and the intensity of the entire not just the match the entire night and i feel like maybe on another show it would seem like overkill but this was the only match on this show where like i like some of the other matches on the show but nothing else on the show felt like anything more than a b-show performance this was when it got down to those two it was the only time this entire night where it felt like a match where two guys were giving you their A plus performance, where it was like on this night, this meant a lot to them that they were getting to main event to show. They knew it was their chance to kind of elevate themselves. And I felt like it was earned also in the sense of Matt, we had just watched that Epic encounter two match between these two. And I remember not liking that match at time feeling like, Oh, this felt like they weren't doing anything extra. And in hindsight, it's probably because they were saving it for this match. And, you know, they they weren't doing in all their other matches a lot of kickouts of every single finish. So so it wasn't like they were doing this on every night. This was something special to them. This was a big deal. So they were treating this like it was a big deal where, you know, they're kicking out of the shadows over hell. They're kicking out. You know, it takes three Cobra stretches to put Seidel down. You know, he kicks his delirious kicks out of the moonsault belly to belly. You know, they're doing all they're all these things they've saved over months and months. They're, they're, they're spending here in this one match. And that makes it just a complete blast. Even though there's not a story, it's just a complete blast 
of an 11 minutes. And, uh, uh, Jeff, you were talking about it. Like this crowd, which hasn't been a great crowd most of the night, they get up for the, for that final 11 minutes. It's like a switch is turned on for them too. Within like a few minutes, this crowd has been pretty quiet for the body of the match and for the whole night. Like they're chanting, this is awesome for the first time in the night. They're chanting ROH. They're getting pretty loud for this. So, um, I, yeah, it's weird. Like I would give the final 11 minutes like four and a quarter stars. So I don't know how I average out. Like it, it, to me, it's like two separate matches and it's a weird thing where like watching this match, I felt like this would be the perfect match to recommend in this. This would be the perfect show to recommend in the sense of I would say to people, you don't need to watch the entire show. You don't even not, you need to watch the entire main event. Just watch the final 11 minutes of this match. If you have like an honor club subscription. And so I looked up honor club. They have the show on honor club, except this match, which is like, I don't know how you up. I don't, I don't know how you upload survival of the fist 2006 and not up and upload the tag time match and all the first round matches and not upload the main event. I mean, maybe I missed something. I looked, I didn't see it. So I would say it's weird because this is not sure I would say like, go buy the DVD, hunt it down on eBay. I would not say go even go hunt down a torrent, but I would say like, if you had an easy access, say through a cheap online monthly subscription service that you could just click and see it, watch the final 11 minutes, which is Seidel and Delirious. I don't think that's an option for you right now. That's, um, that that's sad, but overall that, yeah, that's how I felt about it. I, I, I really like the final 11 minutes, rest of it, not as much. Um, after the match crowd chance, that was awesome. Delirious gets on the mic and it's not working. Cause again, the mics have not been working. So you see Dave Price like racing from backstage to hand Delirious a working mic. Delirious cuts a promo in Delirious ease where he puts over Matt Seidel. He raises Seidel's arm. Seidel says, let's hear it for the fittest deranged psychopath in professional wrestling today. Seidel raises Delirious's arm. And it's funny as Delirious tries to sell, like, you know, being the crazy lizard man. But he's clearly so exhausted, he actually needs to drink, a like, a bottle of water before he starts celebrating. So it's like, I just wrote my notes. I guess even lizard men get thirsty. And then we get a long celebration where he's hugging, like, a ton of people in the front row. They really show you all of it. Yeah, and that's the main event. And... You know, it's them trying to put over another guy to the, to, you know, it, give, it gives them an excuse to have Delirious wrestle Brian Danielson for the world title one more time this year. Because otherwise, Danielson's already beaten him a couple times. It, I, I feel like, you know, it was partly to raise Delirious up because he was pretty over at this time. The act hadn't gotten stale. He was, I would say, very over at this time. So it's probably to try and elevate him a bit and reward him. But I also think it's partly probably because Gabe probably just thought, you know, I've, I got a book out the rest of the year. Can I squeeze one more match out of Delirious Danielson? Well, if Delirious wins this big tournament, that's enough of a justification. So now we just finally to, have this. Just to, oh, play devil's, just to play devil's advocate on the finish and going to another Brian Delirious match. Um, if, if the way I thought for this survival of the fittest to really establish somebody, because that's, to me, what Survival of the Fittest is a vehicle for. It it, it worked mm-hmm. that way, you know, the previous two years with Roddy and uh, Danielson obviously didn't really need establishing, but it kind of gave him an Aries, um, you know, a little bit of uh, combined raising for both. Um, and, and, here you're raising Delirious and Seidel, but which one of those two has a higher ceiling in Ring of Honor? Yeah. Per se. 
And Seidel is a heel or a babyface in, in this case. Um, to me, if the survival of the fittest match has Brian and Joe, you know, they eliminate each other, double count out, whatever. Jimmy Rave can pin Roddy, uh, which circles back to not only the birth of Generation Next, which had just ended the previous time they were in Cleveland, but also to the Embassy versus the Gen Next feud that ended the previous year. Uh, it raises Jimmy Rave up, having pinned Roderick Strong, former tag team champion. Seidel would then come in and he'd pin Austin Aries. Uh, which shows not only has he grown with Generation Next, he has now grown enough that he has beaten the, the leader of Generation Next. And then you have a, a clear delineation in the finals of heel and babyface, as opposed to just the double, let's all cheer for all the moves. You You could have Rave cheat, you could have, you know, Rave is seeking this new direction. This could have been kind of the intro to his new direction. But also, if Seidel wins over Jimmy Rave as opposed to Delirious, and you flip-flop things there, Seidel has pinned top guy Jimmy Rave and overcome him as a cheating heel. He has pinned Austin Aries, the leader of Generation Next. He has pinned Jay Briscoe, multi-time Ring of Honor champion, in the qualifying match earlier in the show. And I think it raises his stock with a much higher ceiling in Ring of Honor for what it was in 2006 than character babyface with really no no layers explored in his crazy man lizard face character delirious. And and that was kind of my takeaway, even though I love the final 11 minutes. Don't get me wrong. It was the best 11 minutes on the entire show by a country mile and a half. I just felt like it was the wrong choice. And uh, I was reminded of that feeling watching the DVD to prepare for your podcast. Jeff, I hear you. All I can say is last night watching AEW Rampage, I heard Don Callis call Matt Seidel a very impressive young man. So it sounds like he, maybe he did not get the opportunity yet, but he still has a long time, it sounds like, to go at the age of 40. Um, the fact that Matt Seidel looks so – like he doesn't age. He looks great. He works great still. Yeah. he. Yeah. And I think he's a better wrestler now than he ever was. In my opinion, as he's aged, he's gotten smarter and more diverse. You know, if you remember back, he was in the pure title tournament in Ring of Honor during the pandemic in the closed set uh, and didn't do anything off the top rope. I think that match that he had with Delirious in the pure title tournament in 2020 was probably the best match those two had together. And people should seek that out on Honor Club. But I I think the idea that Matt Seidel has that Benjamin Button disease where he just keeps looking younger. Yeah. Um, Don Callis needs to, to get on the 
AEW Honor Club team and <laughs> have them upload this finals. Yeah. Um, so finally, we end with a segment that is the build up to the the payoff to what we've been building up all night. Um, it happens outside in darkness. As Dave Frazak informs Jimmy Rave, that's that's where Jim Cornette is. So we see Jimmy go outside. Jimmy finds Jim Cornette outside, who is pissed about stinking Cleveland and can't find his car. Rave asks Cornette, what's the deal with the embassy? Where's Prince Nana? Cornette says Prince Nana tried to pull a power play, and he doesn't go for that. He's not going to negotiate terms with Prince Nana. He takes the terms Jim offers. If he does it, he's gone. So until when or if Nana gets a better attitude, Jim says Prince Nana is gone from Ring of Honor. So do you notice Do you notice that now when you add Nana to the list, the people that Cornette has the big problem with are Homicide and Samoa Joe by proxy <laughs> – and the Rottweilers and Prince Nana. So basically, he's going after every regular person of color who's a member <laughs> of the regular Ring of Honor roster. Because yeah. those are pretty much it, other than like the Japanese guest stars. That's pretty much it it's at this point in the ROH roster be, as far as people of color. It would be something if he just started randomly bringing up like Scoot Andrews or something like And fuck him too. Like just, whoa, whoa, Jim. But, um, um, but it would fit. It would fit because that's, that's what he is. I mean, Jim has well, definitely... Well, I, I will not make any comments on who he is in yes. real life, but definitely as a character, it does seem that way. <laughs> Jim Cornette has not been afraid to do race baiting. We we saw him on Through the Years, one or two show. well, on the last show, do a race baiting angle. So, um, Jim says if uh, Rave wants to do something to help for better his career, help him find his stinking car. Jimmy is not into that. He just wanders, what is going on here? And he walks away. And so, yeah, I wrote my notes. Kind of an anticlimactic on-air writing out of Prince Nana and the embassy where the lead rest of the group somehow can't ask Nana himself what is happening. And we're told he's gone because he tried to negotiate it, renegotiate his contract. So yeah, no big angle, no big f- attack. I know they, the rumor was we talked on the last episode that they want to have Nana get attacked by, uh, Bruno San Martino at the last show. And Bruno was like, I don't want to do a physical angle, but that's the end of Prince Nana is Jim Cornette telling you that. Yeah, he's gone. And when, and when he's going to come back, story, when does he come, the, 2008 he comes back, is that right? Yeah, right yeah. here before Gabe uh, goes, he does the uh, storyline, doesn't he, where he's like back, he's like, I lost my fortune. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And there was there was a whole big story attached to that, uh, of what that story could have turned into. Um, to me, with this Jimmy Rave in the, in the parking lot with Cornette, the thing that bothered me was the phrase power play and the story I had always heard. And Nana is actually somebody that has told me this. He asked for a raise and was told no. And See, we covered this in the new, in the, in the show last time. The only quotes I had was from one of the newsletters. I forget which one basically with, I think Gabe basically saying, Oh, Nana wanted to wrestle more and we didn't see that for him. And, and, and you know, we didn't see it. So, is that, possible. is that gay? But, you know, there's one of those. It could be both be true, right? Maybe there's a chance. That yeah. Nana was like, hey, I'd like more money. And if that means getting him back in the ring, can I do that? And gay basically saying, no, I want you as a manager getting paid this much money. You know, well, it's, it's, it's sorry. In Go general, ahead. the truth is always in the middle somewhere there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and since this is probably going to be one of the last times we get to talk about Nana for a really long time. Very, very inspirational that he's now. A, on, a, a big star on TV. Yeah. And is as over as he is. It feels really good after so many years and validating for, I'm sure, him, but also for us as, you know, people that yes. have been big fans of his for so long. 
he Prince Nana to me is it's crazy. Like I've been watching him for 23 years. Uh, I think I first saw him in the year 2000. Uh, Shout out to Conan O'Brien. So 20, 23 years I've been watching Prince Nana and he's a bigger star now than he ever has been. And he has a viral dance that I won't even (laughs) bother attempting to do in my own house by myself. Um, I'm so happy and so proud of him. And just the fact that, you know, Swerve is a mega star and Nana's associated and lends so much to that act as a whole. Uh, And Swerve has occasionally worn Jimmy Rave's robe. I'm saying this, you know, a day after what should have been Jimmy Rave's 41st birthday. Um, It's just, I get emotional um, thinking about it and, and Nana being on TV. There are, there are times where I I do get a little teary eyed and have to press pause um, because I think of, I think of my friend, Jimmy Rave, I think of yeah. my friend Prince Nana and how proud I am and how happy I am that Jimmy's legacy lives on through Nana, you know, yeah. 17, 18 years later. It, it's just wonderful. Yeah, one of the true, like, kind of feel good stories we've had in, like, the last year of wrestling and for longtime fans. And, uh, speaking of things that make you feel good, before we get to our final thoughts, Matt, last time on the show, it's new, we forgot the Matt F trophy. So technically, if you have a good memory, we have two Matt F trophies to give away today. Oh man, I was not prepared for the Matt F trophy for last month. Um, so, um, but you know what? I'll give it. You know, and this is right off the top of my head. I'm giving it to the uh, Morishima and Joe confrontation for the Glory by Honor show. Um, for this show, um, as far as the Mad F trophy goes, I am going to give it to Colt Cabana for being nice to Jimmy Jacobs <laughs> on the show. So you didn't see that. You didn't see that one coming, did you? You know what? Uh, no. You know what? That is actually the most Matt F trophy. That, that, you know what? I think that persona, it's early in the history of the Matt F trophy. I think that personifies the spirit of, if not the Matt F trophy, at least Matt Forrestie. That's just a nice pick. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was so sad to see Cabana <laughs> being a jerk and now he was being nice. And I was like, Oh, thank God. So um, on final thoughts on the show, I already kind of gave my thoughts during the main event. I kind of, I mean, I, I, I feel like listening to our reviews, I like the show a bit more than either of you guys, but at the same time, this is very much a very skippable B show minus that final 11 minutes, which I do think is something somewhat special. And like I said before, would have been perfect for me to suggest if you have honor club just for to, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone will correct me, but when I took a brief look there, I, it, they had everything but this match. And again, I would not recommend going out of your way to get the show going to any trouble. In other words, it, you know, but if this falls into your lap for some reason with no effort on your part, watch, watch the final 11 minutes. It, it's, it's good. Um, Jeff, what'd you think? Uh, easily the worst of all the Cleveland shows by a long distance. Um, very much a, B minus C plus show. Um, nothing was like obscenely offensive or terrible. Um, outside of like 
just having to hear Jim Cornette do the same promo with, you know, new town inserted, uh, and new local sports teams for him to yell about. Uh, the final 11 minutes of survival of the fittest, bravo, uh, to delirious and Matt Seidel. Um, but, you know, a, a definitely a show that I was like thrilled I went to because I only had a 52 minute drive home. <laughs> That's the best thing about this show, the the, the drive home. Um, well, you know, it beats having a flight at 5 a.m. the next morning from LaGuardia or um, I'm trying to think where I stayed after the the rain tent show. Um, somebody's house. I don't remember who. Um, maybe whoever that was can jog my memory. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, this, I, I don't want to say it's a bad show because it's not. Um, but is it a good show? Is, is it an upper echelon ring of honor show befitting of the two previous survival of the fittest? No, it is not. And, uh, yeah, I mean, if there's any show to sum up, Ring of Honor's run in Cleveland. It's this one. Uh, Matt, what'd you think? And also, before Matt, we go to you. I just want to note, I just checked again, just to be sure. I looked up, um, Survival of the Fist 2006 again. And again, for those who have never used Honor Club, one of the reasons we don't use Honor Club for this is because they have this really annoying habit of they just split the shows into matches and they don't give you like one unending thing that's unclipped or anything. They have every single match on this show except the main event. So if you go to Survival of the Fist 2006, you will not get the finals of the match, but you'll get the entire first round. That is that is an absolutely bizarre choice of uploading. Um, but Matt, what do you think about the show? Um, I liked it more than I did at the time, I would say, because I just feel less disappointment in certain things. And I think the things that I liked – you know, like surprisingly were a little bit different than the ones that you did in terms of like the tag title match. And I think I like the main event a little bit more than you while certainly liking the, uh, the Briscoes match and, uh, and the Austin Aries match much less than you did. Um, so I think it probably balances out. This is definitely a, a B show that has some entertainment value, but never really needs to be seen by anybody unless you're just a huge delirious inside Al fan. Um, I, Remember this as being the beginning of a pretty dry run for ROH where just a lot of the stuff they're doing just isn't quite clicking on the same level that they usually do, especially the homicide, like trying to make homicide be stone cold going up against the, uh, you know, the evil authority. I just, I just don't think that storyline ever really clicks and it never really feels right until he finally gets in the ring with Danielson in final battle. And since that's such an overwhelming part of the company over the next few months, I think that kind of takes down everything. Um, hopefully I'm wrong and hopefully I'll be surprised <laughs> when I watch a lot of these shows, but that's what I remember. And I think it kind of leads to some lackluster crowd reactions too. Um, that's what I expect for the next little while. Um, but there is some dynamic stuff that happens on the show the night after, certainly a little bit more variety than what we got here. So looking forward to seeing just how uh, some of the memorable moments of uh, what's it called? Showdown in Motown. Is that what it's um, called? Motor, Motor, City Motor, City Motor City Madness. Motor City Madness. Yeah, yeah. Showdown in Motown was 05, right? Motor City Madness. Correct. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's some mad moments in that. So, uh, we'll see how they play off, play out. I'm so time for, oh, time for plugs. Jeff, anything you want to plug? Obviously, an honorable mention the podcast currently on hiatus or whatever, but the sad thing is, the sad thing is you guys put out so many episodes doing it weekly. You could literally not do the show for years, and we will still have fewer episodes produced than you guys. You have over two hundred, I think. Yeah, we're we're two hundred eight total. Yeah, um, and and we are on hiatus. We're gonna get back to it at some point. Um, it's just between Hagedorn writing, uh, something I do want to plug. Uh, so I'm gonna plug the Code of Honor book. Um, that that is uh. It's really incredible, and I'm really proud of my friend, uh, the, the Chris Maurer, the person behind Shane Agadorn, uh, for putting all of this history um, on paper. And as he said to me yesterday, it actually is a living thing now because it's on Google Doc. Um, you guys are going to love this book when it comes out. Every Ring of Honor fan, every wrestling fan that has an attachment to people on Monday Night Raw. Uh, I don't think anybody in NXT. I, I, I guess Punk was on NXT tonight. So, yeah, I was going to say, CM Punk. Uh, <laughs> NXT yeah, there. CM Punk, was. he might sign with NXT. Um, Dynamite, <laughs> uh, Impact, SmackDown. Like, There's so much detail, so many incredible stories, and so many great people have contributed to the book. Um, so follow Code of Honor. Uh, book on Twitter, X, whatever it's called this week. Uh, if you use that cesspool, um, you know, go follow the accounts. Um, there's a lot of cool snippets and, and archival things that are going to be in the book uh, from Hagedorn. Um, I also want to take time to plug two other important things. Um, we mentioned Ralph Sorella at the top of the show. Um, Rest in peace to Ralphie Cakes. Um, he worked with Howard Stern for the better part of the last 40 years, and Howard's been a huge part of my life, probably as much as wrestling and Ring of Honor in general. Um, so Ralph was only 58 and passed away, and, and he'll be missed. Um, please, all of you out there, take care of yourselves. Um, I want to specifically thank University Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, which is a good solid 10 minute drive from the Gray's Armory. Uh, my brother recently had a tumor removed, non cancerous, um, in a process that has been going on since July. He finally had his surgery this past Friday. And, uh, I want to thank Dr. Wilhelm for saving my brother's life and, uh, allowing me to continue to have baby bro for many many years to come um it has been an incredibly stressful and worrisome time uh where not only have my parents been up here from florida for the better part of the last uh six months um you know my niece is two years old and a quarter of her life has been disrupted by uh this entire medical situation. So thank you to Dr. Wilhelm who did a, a great job in, in the surgical department and uh, the rest of his staff at university hospital in Cleveland. If you got a tumor in your kidney and you tear your adrenal gland, go see Dr. Wilhelm. 
Um, I wish everybody a healthy and happy holiday season and uh, follow me on threads. Um, I think my username is uh, Mr. Jeff Schwartz zero. So that's uh, my socials everywhere. And for us, you know, through the years at gmail.com for our email, THROH for through at Trevor Dame on Twitter at Mayor MGF on Twitter. And for Matt, until next time, we will be covering Motor City Madness 2006, which will be, as Matt said, you know, we've, we may have started the, the dry spell of Ring of Honor. So get into what I am calling the dry winter for through the years of 2023, 2024. Hashtag Matt and Trevor made us dry. Um, we, uh, we're, we're in some, we're in, uh, I mean, I speak for myself. I'm in all kinds of dry spells. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I could talk about eczema. I could talk about my sex life. It would apply either way. So until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.